race to spare, Frankie can finally say relax. Welcome to episode 37 of Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, it's a warm welcome to episode 37 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101, covering the penultimate round of this season's MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3 World Championships. God, how this season has flown by. Um, we're going to look back on all three classes last weekend at Sepang in very, very different conditions across the three classes. Andrea Dovizioso doing exactly what he needed to do by leading home a Ducati 1-2. Insert no controversy to speak of there um, in the Malaysian Grand Prix. To keep the title race alive, it goes to the final round in Valencia next weekend. Um, we'll talk all about the stories from that MotoGP race as Dobby led the first Ducati 1-2 for a little over a year. Um, and Matt Marquez did nearly enough um, to win the championship, but he will have to do it all in Valencia next time out. Um, we'll also talk all about the aforementioned Frankie Morbidelli, who is the Moto2 world champion, even though he did perhaps clinch it in slightly anticlimactic fashion as Thomas Luzzi had to miss the race through injury. We'll also talk all about Moto3. The championship was already decided a week ago in favour of Joan Mir, and he showed exactly why he is the dominant world champion with his 10th victory of the season in the lightweight class. Um, we'll also talk about all the big news from the World Superbike Paddock as they confirm their calendar and their rule set for next season. And we'll look ahead to its final round of 2017, which is already underway, given the uh, quirk of the Qatar schedule this weekend. We'll include that with a preview of the Championship Decider in World Supersport. And yes, believe it or not, there is a Championship Decider in, in the World Supersport class this weekend. The Iron Man of Turkey has turned up to race in the finale uh, at La Salle this weekend under the lights. Um, joining me then to talk all things World Superbikes and indeed all things Sepang. Uh, it's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Good evening, everybody. Um, good, glad to be with you as always. And um, yes, I'm about as strong as Keenan Safogalu's hip, which means I'm basically made of iron. I am basically Iron Man at this point. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story that, which we will tell you all about towards the end of this show. Immense, immense, well, bravery and guts from Keenan uh, to take this World Team Sport title race to the wire in Qatar this weekend. Uh, we'll cover that at the end of the show. Um, but before that, let's tell you about the places you can find us. We are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, on uh, YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 on there as well. Our website is motorsport101.net. Um, we've mentioned World Superbikes a couple of times. You might want to head over to the Motorsport 101 website, motorsport101.net right now. Um, Dre has put a piece up there concerning World Superbikes and the current predicament facing that series. Um, check that out right now. Um, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly podcasts, then Patreon is the place to go. Patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Episode 110 is up right now as you, you uh, listen to this. Um, on all the places where good podcasts can be found. Um, wasn't the easiest podcast to put together, we'll be honest with you, listeners, um, this week for episode 110. Um, and from your point of view, Dre, not the easiest one to record either because you had to uh, sing Lewis Hamilton's praises for an hour and a half. And sacrifice a goat. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you heard it here first, everybody. Um, 
Yeah, it, it was okay. Like a bit of an insider trade secret for you, bike live fans out there. Sadly, um, our keeping it one one segment didn't make the cut. Unfortunately, King's audio got a bit corrupted on that one. I mean, we've recorded 110 episodes, and it's the first time that's ever happened. So, hopefully, it's 110 more till the next one. Luckily, it wasn't the whole audio file. Otherwise, it really would have been buggered. But. Yeah. Uh, Thankfully, it was just to keeping it one on one second. Everything else was was still working perfectly, which is just bizarre, quite frankly. Um, but um, sadly, that keeping it one on one is it. Don't worry, you didn't miss too much. The only thing you really missed was King opening a box. Hmm. Trust me, it's more exciting than I'm making it sound. But also, I had to praise Lewis Hamilton through extremely gritted teeth, um, and uh, yeah, sing his praises as he obviously clinched his fourth world title at Mexico. And we'll talk about the Mexican Grand Prix in general, including Max Verstappen, who has pretty much cemented the Daniel Kvyat curse at this point. He's won, he's won a hat-trick ball for his, for his for his troubles there on that one. For Sydney's best ever finish, that turn one incident, Sebastian Vettel going from 19th to 4th, falling on his sword like all good champions do. And a whole bunch of news and your questions as well, including the Lando Nando show heading to the Rolex 24, uh, heading to a Daytona circuit near you sometime soon. And some really good questions this week, this week as well. So check it out. Episode 110, 4 by 44 out now where all good podcasts are available. Yeah, including Dre throwing shade at our former boss, which made me giggle. Um, I, I, uh, <laughs> I like what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, not at all, not at all. Yeah, yeah. You, you make up the rest at home as you listen to this. Um, if you know the history of Bite Live, you'll know exactly who and what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it was um, yeah, an interesting old show. I have to say, um, another trade secret for those that don't really know it, I edit Motorsport 101's, uh, the, the, the Motorsport 101 podcast as well as this one. Um, and in some ways, um, I almost felt like leaving it in, because in some ways it's a fun game for you all to play at home, to sort of have to listen to it without King's audio. <laughs> try, try, <laughs> try and make up the bits, that make up the sort of sign pauses and try and guess what he's saying. Um, but uh, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, it wasn't usable. So um, yeah, the unboxing will have to be um, left for another show, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, oh. check out episode 110, 4x44, right now, um, as uh, Lewis Hamilton clinched his fourth Formula 1 world title. Um, two races to go in the Formula 1 World Championship, just one to go in the MotoGP World Championship. And let's talk about the penultimate round last weekend at Japan. And we're going to start, for the first time, I think this year, we're going to start in Moto2. Because um, it's usually the class that provides the least to talk about um, from a race weekend. It's not the case this weekend. And uh, sadly, um, the uh, story that we lead with is a very, very sad one. Um, in the On the morning of the first uh, day of the race weekend, the Friday, um, Dorna announced officially that uh, Stefan Kiefer, the uh, team boss of the Kiefer Racing Team, uh, had tragically lost his life. He passed away um, overnight on Thursday night. Um, it was an absolute shock to everyone in the paddock. There'd been no... Um, suggestions or inkling of any ill health on on stefan's part um in fact he'd been i believe with his brother um the night before on that thursday night and basically going about their normal race weekend enjoying koala lumper and yeah on the friday morning um stefan kiefer was found dead uh, in his hotel his hotel room and it just rocked the entire paddock and uh, we know him Dre, I suppose, best from his time as, as Danny Kent's team boss when, of course, Danny Kent won the Moto3 title um, in 2015. Stefan Kiefer, of course, also led Stefan Bradle to the Moto2 title in 2011. Um, a guy who we've seen interviewed before, and I've never ever seen him without a smile on his face. And mm. he's also a guy, I think back to the interview that he did concerning Danny Kent right at the start of the season, he was always a guy, and you don't always get this in the MotoGP paddock or in any sporting context, that 
always pretty much shoots you straight um, when he's interviewed. Um, mm. And he's the kind of guy, and he is a guy who will, you know, his his loss will leave a, a, a pretty sizable hole in the MotoGP paddock as a hole. Absolutely. Um, geez, it's it, it's it, it was a shock. It was, it was a real shock. I, I woke up on Friday morning, took him for results, and then next thing you know, he's found dead. Just uh, just awful. Um, only fifty one as well. That's no age at all um, for someone to pass away like that. But as you say, I mean, a, a, a great team boss with with success, and you know, a, a great track record of bringing up quality riders like Danny Kent and like. Uh, Stefan Bradl as well, and as you, like again, you made a very good point. You, were, I was going to draw on this as well, but you, you did before I before I could get a chance there. But you're absolutely right. I think he's one of those guys that was a very straight shooting, had no problem um, being an open book in his time at Kiev, especially when Danny Kent was, uh, shall we say, aggressive in how he felt he, he was being treated in that team. Um, you know, Stefan was honest up front to the point and a, a true professional. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a it's a real shame. One of the, one of the more prominent um, team bosses in the paddock always was willing to give time to the media, um, always with a smile on his face, and again, shot from the hip, uh, was honest, but you know, a breath of fresh air to have in the paddock, and it's a real shame he's gone. Yeah, he, uh, he. I mean, I'm not saying this was a decision directly made by him, but of course, it was his rider who won the World Championship who gave time to us to come on the show and uh, speak to us um, a couple of years ago. And um, it's it's a team that's always been very open and um, very graceful with their with the time of their riders and giving their their riders um, the opportunity to speak um, to pokey shows like this one. Um, and um, it was one of our proudest moments when we got Danny Kent on the show two years ago, and we we thank Stefan Kiefer for that. He is a, a man who. As I say, we'll leave a, a great hole in the paddock. Lost his life last week. Uh, Stephen Kiefer, who passed away at the age of just 51. Well, two happier news um, in the Moto2 paddock. And certainly happier news, if your name is Frankie Morbidelli, um, who last weekend, Dre, was crowned the 2017 Moto2 world champion. Um, no question um, that it's a fully deserved world championship, and we'll talk about Frankie a bit more um, in a second. But slight tinge of, of again sadness with with how this championship was wrapped up because um, Thomas Luti had thrown everything at Frankie Morbidelli through the season to try and keep this alive for as long as possible. Cost just the two wins to Thomas Luti this season has gone on, and in the end, the um, it wasn't so much the hits being dealt out by Frankie Morbidelli, but the hits that Thomas Luti was giving to himself. Through crashing his brains out, basically, that, that dealt the final blow. That huge high side that he had on Saturday qualifying at Sepang ended up ruling him out of the race weekend and indeed the championship as a result. Yeah, just um, it's, it's 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 a sad one for Thomas Lutie because this has been the best Thomas Lutie has been on a Moto2 bike since he joined the class in 2010. Um, as we know it now as Moto2 um, in the intermediate tier, he's he's had many, many podiums, multiple race wins. This this was by far the best loot he has looked. He's just um, you know, putting together a real package again where he's given the champion a really good run for run for their money, but sadly just not quite enough. And and um yeah, even again the injury kind of sealing the deal on that one unfortunately. And I, I sp- I'm sure I speak on behalf of the Mark VDS team who tweeted that um a, a very classy commiseration 
um, to Thomas saying, yeah, nobody wants to see a championship settled off the track like that. And He's kind of their rider but, now, isn't he? Yeah, and especially now, given that he's, he's basically a future employee um, at this point as well, to say the least. Um, but by any measure, a, 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 a somber end for Luti's great season. And a real shame it's, it's had to go down that way. But I think he's, I think he's clearly just pushed his body a little bit too far. I think he, he, he clearly got dinged up um, as we got to Phillip Island. That, that massive wreck in Phillip Island was probably what, what set the tone, really. And, uh, you know, going into another round a week later is not going to help. Um, and, yeah, the big high side in qualifying was, again, what sealed the deal, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I hope Thomas doesn't isn't too demoralised by that because he's been phenomenal all, um, all season long. And he's deserved the MotoGP seat he's gotten with Mark VDS. And I hope he, um, he, he can recover and you know, get back on the bike as soon as possible um, after surgery because uh, he needs it. He's going to need the help because you know this is this is no this is no small feat. He's going into MotoGP after years on 600. So um, yeah, I hope it works out for him. Well, this is the real shame for me with this. I mean, you know, Luti to miss out on the championship is a shame. He's going to be runner up for the second year in a row. Um, in the Moto2 World Championship, he was runner-up to Zarco last year. Um, and he's been uh, an ever-present, pretty much. He's been a stalwart of this Moto2 class since its inception yeah. in 2010. He's been in the class every single year since it came to be. Um, and in, no question he's deserved this MotoGP step-up. And he, he we, you look at people like Zarco, who's impressed us so much this season. Um, and he did the likes of Vinales and Marquez, who, of course, moved up to MotoGP and done incredible things in recent years. All of those, at one point or another, were pretty much matched by Thomas Luti when they were in Moto2. Right. Luti's matched all of these guys, but never quite got the got the rub as a result of it because he's been the experienced guy that um, these great young riders have been measured against. You know, if you beat Thomas Luti in Moto2, you're going places. Um, and, and Franco Morbidelli is the latest example of that, and he's earned this MotoGP step up as Luti. Um, and as I say, the real shame for me now is that. As Alex Rins found out at the start of last year, it's not an easy class to start in at the best of times, much less if you're already on your back foot having come into the class injured. Um, and that's really the problem that Thomas Lucy's going to face now. He's already going to miss the Valencia post-race test, which will see both he and Morbidelli, or would have seen both he and Morbidelli stump on a MotoGP bike for the first time. And Lucy's already starting his MotoGP career behind the curve. Absolutely, because he's probably going to miss the Valencia test now as he recovers from the from, from, from the ankle surgery. So he's not going to probably ride a MotoGP bike at all until next year after Christmas when we head to head to Sepang for the for the first of the Sepang tests. Um, so yeah, that's a real shame. I mean, you need all the time you can get on one of these bikes, and, and like Rins did this year, he's playing catch up, and that's never ideal when when you when you're riding your first brand new machinery um, on a competitive level for the, for, for for ten years. Um, so yeah, again, I hope Luti can 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 recover as quickly as possible, so he can get get back on the, get back in the room to train because uh, this is not ideal for him. He's he's going to miss a, he's going to miss a lot of, of, of peak testing time. I mean, it's his very important test, and he's not going to be there for it. So, so it's, it's a real shame. It's a, it's a it's a double whammy to add to basically not being a title contender this year now, not winning the title now. You're probably not going to even get in the test either. Mm. Yeah, and it's a real shame to see his season end like this, his Moto2 career end like this, and indeed his time with the 
the intervention team who've um, done such a good job. And of course, they'll be bringing Sam Lowe's into the fold in Lutie's place next year, as well as KTM motorcycles. And, and that's looking at a better decision with every passing race weekend, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but a, a great classy gesture from um, the splendidly named team manager, Frederick Coleman both. Um, of the Intervetan squad, um, who, who said after the race, um, we conclude three amazing seasons in which he's been runner-up twice. He has much more career ahead of him, he being Lutie, and I hope with all my heart that he will regain his full form as soon as possible to start his adventure in MotoGP in the best way. I also want to take this opportunity to toast the incredible season of Franco Morbidelli, an exceptional competitor. What he has achieved this year is incredible. We have fought hard against this extremely professional team, and I am convinced that it has been very rewarding for everyone. And and with that, let's talk about the exceptional competitor wow. um, that Frederick is referring to there, Franco Morbidelli, who, um, however, the championship was ultimately decided, Dre. Um, I mean, the guys won nine races this season in, in Moto2. He is unquestionably the deserving champion. Without question, he's been phenomenal um, all, all, all season long. He's just stepped his game up to another level. Um, a lot of people were saying that he may, but he may be the guy to watch early going. You know, he showed real form towards the end of last year. Racked up the podiums towards the end of the season. The first win in the class was coming. I mean, let's not forget he he went into this year with Moto Two class victory, and he's ended the year with at least nine wins to his name. That is incredible. That's an incredible, you know, rise in performance to take yourself from, you know, upper midfield threat, you know, occasional race winning threat to dominant series champion for the year. He's won half the races on the calendar. That's incredibly impressive. And, um, you know, props to Mark VDS for taking good care of him and props to him for, again, for, for raising his game so much because uh, I can't remember the last time I've seen such an improvement from a rider from one season to another. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It was just almost like a, a switch was flicked, wasn't it, at the start of the season? And, and he's one of those riders, and we hear it said a lot about riders before they win a Grand Prix that, oh, when they win one, they'll win several of them. Um, and and Morbidelli, again, is living proof of that. The victory in Qatar was reasonably comfortable. Um, no one really was able to see which way he went there. Um, but the way he just tightened his grip as the season went on with the victory in Argentina, where he first met the challenge of his teammate, Alex Marquez, um, who looked strong there of course Oliveira on the KTM had taken pole position earlier that weekend um, mm-hmm. to serve notice of their intent for the season um, but of course Alex Marquez taking the battle to Morbidelli but Morbidelli again would just have that answer right at the end and in the end forced Marquez into a pretty sizable error on the final lap where he just the pressure got to him and Marquez went down exactly yeah just one of those things where Morbidelli's pace was just so strong in Argentina and um, you could see Marquez was, was was getting a little bit desperate towards the end of that one, and yeah, forced and forced the error, um, which is funny because Marquez got his own back on that one a couple of rounds later. But yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, definitely a, a sign of things going when Frankie's at the front leading the way. He's an incredibly hard man to beat. Yeah, he is. He's an incredibly uh, strong competitor. He went on to make it three wins out of three with a victory. Um, at the Circuit of the Americas next time out, which almost had us talking about the championship being next to decided already with no obvious challenger um, stepping to the fore. Thomas Lutti had been keeping up with him in terms of podiums, but not in terms of victories. As Dre mentioned, Alex Marquez would get revenge on Morbidelli with the victory at Jerez as Morbidelli was the man to crash out this time, uh, crashing out of second place. Um, but as we've seen, it's been a real feature, Dre, of, of Morbidelli's championship year of Whenever he has met a lull, whenever he has had a dip of form or a dip of luck or a crash that's cost him points, he's always struck back. He's never let it fester, has he? He's always struck back at the very next race and righted the wrong immediately. 
yeah, like the, like the, the mind resets. He just he comes back stronger the next time out, and he he re, just reestablishes his authority on the field. Where where if he has a bad day, he immediately comes back and wins the next one. He's he's he's, in, he's got that incredible sense of bounce back ability um, that I've not seen out of somebody in Moto Two for quite some time. Or he's, he's, where, that's that's so hard to do to be consistent in Moto Two, but then also not let those bad results affect you because. It happens a lot where guys have really good days, and then obviously Moto Two is a class, as a spec series, essentially breeds inconsistency. And yet, Morbidelli found a way to always keep himself at the, at the front, no matter what was going on around him. It was a, a very un, underrated part of his game that we haven't talked about as much. Mm, yeah, he's he's done a, a, an incredible job. He had a, a bit of a lull again um, through Mugello as home Grand Prix as uh, Matteo Pasini took the home honors there. Uh, with that mm-hmm. stunning final lap. Alex Marquez victorious in Barcelona as Morbidelli again had a bit of a dip. Um, but, I mean, it's difficult. When a guy's won eight races in the season, it's difficult to pinpoint any one of them as, as more key than the other because they've they've all contributed to him winning this championship. But those back-to-back mm-hmm. wins, Dre, at Assen and at the Saxon ring, I think are, are very key for me. Um, not least the Saxon ring victory, where, of course, Thomas Lutti crashed out in that one whilst trying to race Morbidelli for the win. But the Assen victory, he really had to fight tooth and nail for that in a very unmoto two kind of race, um, where we ended yeah. up with a packed battle, a five-way scrap at the front. Uh, and Morbidelli was the one in true champion's fashion. Morbidelli was the one in that five-way scrap that ended up having that little bit extra at the end. He did. He you know, dragged Miguel Oliveira with him at the end and you know came down to the final quarter, as it so often does at the Saxon ring. But again, Frankie was able to get one out on top. And that was a critical round given his teammate and Luti had, had crashed earlier in the race it was a golden opportunity for Morbidelli to really, really put a foot on the neck of the championship and he did just that Thomas Luti would go on to win as it turned out the next race at the Bruno although he wouldn't actually um that was a kind of curious win that it was a six lap race where Luti ended up taking it when the rain fell and forced a restart um, that was his first win of the season, of course, for Thomas Duty. Morbidelli fought back again in true championship fashion by winning at the Red Bull Ring next time out. Um, another key result for him. And he actually only went on to win one of the next five races after that. And um, with mm. Thomas Duty winning a race that he wasn't actually credited with for another month or so, as Agatha was disqualified from the Mizano race. Morbidelli, of course, crashing out of that one um, before Frankie went on to win at Aragon. And it was the Aragon race, really, Dre, that took him within touching distance of the championship and also pulled in a race wins worth of points clear of Thomas Lutti. And again, yeah. a key final lap for Morbidelli where again, he was the guy that had that bit extra right to the end where Matai Pacini essentially tried to punch him out on that final lap and uh, Morbidelli would just have that one little bit of bit of punch left in him because it was, it was a physical final lap that one between Morbidelli and Pacini. Again, not very Moto2-like, but again, Morbidelli yeah. showing that he's up for a scrap. It was a fantastic race. I mean, it's one of those races, I think it's my personal favorite Moto2 race this year, only because of just how different it was. It was a real tactical fight at the front, uh, a, a, a game of strategy where we saw Pacini pull off a ridiculous lap in the middle of that race, a qualifying level lap um, during that race to get up to the back of Morbidelli. And then it became a game of who can preserve their tires. And you know, both of them burnt out and overheated towards the end, but it was Morbidelli with that unbelievable pass and the corkscrew. Mm. The second half of the corkscrew that would go on to win the race, he basically outboxed Pacini for that win right at the end. Um, punch v. Counterpunch. It was a tremendous fight, and it was one that Morbidelli just came out on top with a with a pass that was 
that was worthy of winning any race, yeah. really. Pacini's tough, too. Pacini is tough. Oh, God, yes. So if you're, if you're managing to essentially out-muscle him for a race win, um, that, that is something special. Um, hasn't won since then. Um, Alex Marquez winning um, the rain-affected race at, at Mategi as both championship contenders struggled, although Mobidelli would be the one to struggle slightly less um, in that race. He finished eighth, whilst Luti was three spots further back. Um, the Australian Grand Prix, Morbidelli again did what he had to do, finished third, whilst Luti struggled in the mixed conditions, and of course he was in a little bit of pain, having crashed twice in that race weekend. And then, of course, he was crowned champion before the Malaysian Grand Prix even took place, and uh, um, I, I did love the uh, the t-shirts that they broke out at Mark VDS. Of course, anyone who's uh, watched Friends in the past um, will oh, know yeah. all about that. The even the scene where where Ross pulls on a shirt bearing that slogan. Um, Frankie well, Frankie yeah. says relax, um, and uh, it, a lot of credit has to go to the team who, um, of course, had as one were wearing those t-shirts because this has been an incredible succession of of success really for this Mark VDS team. In this class, all the way back to Scott Redding's time with the team, where, but for a badly timed injury, he might have been champion with that squad um, in the Moto2 class. Uh, Tito Rabat won the championship with them, leading a championship 1-2 um, ahead of Mika Calio. Um, and for them to then get to the top of the mountain again um, with Franco Morbidelli. Um, again, we, we've spoken at length before about Mark BDS, but they really are a class above the rest of Moto2, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They are the gold standard at this point of what Moto Two is. I mean, they have produced quality riders up and down. Again, you, you mentioned Redding. You know, Rabat's been fantastic. Calio has 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 proven that he's still a quality rider in in, in Moto GP with, with his limited opportunities with KTM. Alex Marquez is still improving year to year. It might be his turn next year. For all you know, just, they're going to get one year. <laughs> Yeah, you just signed Joe Amir, who, who you know seems pretty good from 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 you know by, by the looks of it, um, and you know of course they've now added Frankie Morbidelli to that list, and worth pointing out as well, the first world champion to come out of the VR46 Academy, mm. which uh, you know congratulations to Valley and the crew there because that you know not much is made of how much Valentino Rossi has well pretty much saved Italian motorcycle racing with that academy now. And producing talent, yeah, but the uh, yeah. Academy is essentially the new Italian Academy, isn't it? It's taken over from the <laughs> the FIM, this, the, the the system which um, pulled out of Moto Three racing at the start of last year. The uh, Made in Italia um, FIM team, which um, once upon a time uh, ran Mauro Finati right at the start of his career, the FMI team pulled out, essentially saying that our work here is done. Uh, we no longer need to run this academy because there are enough Italian riders in this class that have come from the VR46 stable and um, Valentino Rossi keen to get in on the action on the slowdown lap, the celebratory lap um, for uh, Franco Morbidelli. Of course, Morbidelli will be not only the first VR46 rider um, to win a championship, he'll be the first VR46 rider to get into MotoGP and the first yeah. VR46 rider to race against VR46 himself. Um, which will yeah. be very interesting next season mm. as Morbidelli essentially races against his manager um, in MotoGP um, next year. Um, so uh, so good luck to Frankie. And how do you think he's going to get Andre? I mean, he's he's in a good team, isn't he, um, to make your debut. Mark Bidiets are a team that treats its riders well, gives them every opportunity to succeed. They've won a MotoGP race, let us not forget, with Jack Miller. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that as this season's gone on, the Honda is looking a much better bike to ride on for a rookie than it did a couple of years ago. It really has. It's come a long way in the last couple of years, and the team has come along a long way the last couple of years. I mean, they were right at the back with Scott Redding and then Rabat, 
and you know the Miller project um, as as it's been. You know, they, there's been teething problems to say the least with that. But uh, as as time has gone on, they they found their footing, and you know R- Miller is now regularly in the top ten. Um, Rabat is 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 showing improvement. Sadly, he won't be with them next year. He'll be with Vintia. But um, the the team has come a long way, and it, it it's it's making gains on the midfield now as solid midfield runners. And I think Morbidelli could could walk into that team and be a top ten runner. I really do. I think that you know, the team is coming along strong. The Honda will inevitably get better and, and and better as Honda find gains from where they were as a bike in the last couple of years, and that inevitably will get passed on to Frankie. And hey, it's in Valentino Rossi's best interest to get the best out of his academy riders, so I'm sure there'll be some influence from Valley on that. Not too much, mind. That Yamaha hasn't been any good this year. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, and uh, VR46 or Valentino Rossi is, um, let's say he's not perhaps on as good terms as with Honda as he was back when he was winning championships for them um, back in the early 2000s. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting uh, dynamic as well with um, Valentino Rossi <laughs> having a rider riding on a Honda next year. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to be a great team. That it probably won't get talked about as much as the uh, rookie pairing that my Monster Yamaha Tech Three ran this year, um, for slightly obvious reasons. Given that they're perhaps um, the team running slightly better motorcycles at uh, Monster Yamaha Tech Three, although uh, as we'll talk about later on, they might not be too happy with the bikes they're going to be given for 2018 um, over mm. at Tech Three. Um, but yeah, I think Morbidelli and Luti as a MotoGP team has got a lot of lot of potential to come from it. And yeah, I think as much as Morbidelli, I think is going to do a great job in MotoGP. Assuming he's fully fit, I think Luti will too. Um, I think he's a rider Absolutely. that, like, as I mentioned earlier on, right throughout the years of Moto2, with the likes of Marquez, Vinales, now Morbidelli that moved to this class, and Zarco, every, every time that one of these riders has come through the class, they've had to beat Thomas Luti to win this championship. Um, mm-hmm. And look what these guys have achieved in MotoGP. So for me, there's no reason why Luti can't jump on a MotoGP bike and be impressive and be every bit as good as Morbidelli in that team. Um, and I really look forward to seeing how Mark Vidias get on in MotoGP next season. The, as far as the class that these two guys are leaving me behind, though, Drake, we spoke last week about how excited we are about Moto2 next season. Um, I don't think anyone is quite as excited about Moto2 in 2018 as KTM are another 1-2. They've opened the floodgates big time. Where the hell has this come yeah. from? Um, serious. Ominous. Um, um, out of nowhere, KTM all of a sudden is looking like they're almost unbeatable right now. Like, Take that, Calix. Yeah. F- f- good, good, good. <laughs> Please, more of this, KTM. More. Uh, I demand more blood. Um, but yes, uh, Miguel Oliveira at it again. Another fantastic performance up the front there. Just in complete control of that pretty much all the way through. Got the whole shot, gone. Good night. Um, and that was the end of that. And Binder, again, having to make his way up a little bit. But again, getting the better of Morbidelli on the Calyx and consolidating that second place. That was textbook team riding from KTM there. And, well, back-to-back one-two finishes. Look out for next season. I'm 99% sure now that uh, Miguel Oliveira will enter next year as championship favourite because he's on fire right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's mouth-watering for next season. And I'm pretty sure, um, this is a bit of a guess because I haven't actually looked this up. I'm trying to look it up as I speak. I'm pretty sure that's the first time that Calix have coughed up back-to-back races in Moto2 since Mar- Marquez was a thing. In the Moto2 class, when he, of course, he was on the suitor in Moto2. Mm. Um, pretty sure that's the last time that uh, anything other than a Calyx has won back-to-back Grand Prix in this class. 
um, which is which is extraordinary to tell you the, the progress that KTM and indeed Oliveira have made this year. Um, the Oliveira now, Dre, behind the dominant or Morbidelli and Luti, who've been the dominant forces in the championship, they decided the championship between them. Oliveira is now confirmed as third in the world championship, having won this race with Alex Marquez failing to score. Um, and we would, we would, I don't think we would have given them any price on that at the start of the season. That either KTM or Oliveira would be as high as that coming into the season. Phenomenal job from Miguel to basically seal the British Optimism Award of a bronze medal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, again, you can't argue with that. I mean, to be best of the rest, um, you know, basically given that you know Morbidelli and Luti have been the, the class of the field this year. Um, Miguel has he's gotten better and better as the season. He, he started the season pretty great as it was, quite frankly. You know, running fourth on their opening race. You know, a, 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 a optimistic second, but only a couple of seconds off the win in Argentina. They've been right up there, pretty much again, pretty much right from the start. They've had, they've had off days, but they're getting better and better by the race. And Miguel has been superb all year long. Um, you know, he's challenged for multiples. He's now won two as well, and. Yeah, you know, there could be potential for more um, at Valencia to close out the season. Isn't next this week. ominously reminiscent of when he won his first Moto Three race and the run that followed? Oh yeah, like once the first one came, they yeah, the floodgates opened and he he just found a way to keep bashing them out. It was ridiculous. Um, as this, again, that Moto Three run of form is was was sublime from Oliveira back then, hmm. um, and it looks like it looks like something similar could be happening here in Moto Two because like, it, it it looks like everything is clicking now for Miguel Oliveira, and now it's clicking. Um, look out! Yeah. He, he, he's, he's, he's in phenomenal form. We've woken a monster. Um, I mean. Yeah, I'll be very. Oliveira will surely be a very short odds favourite for Moto Two next season. But I'd be very keen to see the odds of Brad Binder when they are prom- mm. published next season as teammate to Oliveira. Um, what a strong team that is. Um, Brad Binder, who we cannot um, overstate this enough, he is still a class rookie um, in, in Moto Two because, um, of course, this time last year he was cleaning up the Moto Three World Title. He's had injuries that have affected his season, which meant that he's only really two-thirds of the way through his own season, even though the season is very nearly finished. Um, and for the second consecutive weekend, Ray, Brad Binder has essentially gone to war with the world champion, Franco Morbidelli, and come out on top both times. Yeah, very impressive stuff. Um, Binder, yeah, he's been, in, he's been in the wars a little bit, but he, he knows how to fight people. And again, second race in a row, battling with the world champion, Frankie Morbidelli. And came out the better one for it. Again, I just don't know where this KTM sudden turn of form has come from, but it's brought out the best in both their riders. Binders look superb lately as well. Mm. If, he, if he's winning dogfights against Mark VDS, that's a very good sign for next year as well. Yeah, he is up to ninth in the championship now, a point behind Simone Corsi. He could finish the season eighth in the world championship, Brad Binder, having missed mm. three races earlier in the year uh, through injury. Um, which is extraordinary. It's, it's becoming increasingly the case, Dre, looking at it, where if Brad Binder hadn't have actually had those injuries in the season, he could quite easily have been pushing Peko Barnea all the way for the Rookie of the Year spot. Absolutely. Um, so the, the way it's been going right now, um, he's, he's, he's looked very, very good. The last three or four rounds, he's just gotten better and better. Running in the top five, Peko slipped a little bit from his probably unsustainable yeah. early season form. 
Um, but yeah, quite right. I think I, I think you're absolutely spot on there. You could have absolutely challenged for Rookie of the Year if, if this form had come a little bit earlier. But hey, better late than never, right? Yeah, exactly. And just to emphasise KTM's dominance that has suddenly emerged late in this Moto2 season, Franco Morbidelli, the world champion, um, he was the only rider within 21 seconds of the KTM's uh, at the end of that match. Um, the race winner was Oliveira from Binder by 2.3 seconds. Morbidelli was a further four seconds back in third. Fourth place, Matai Pacini was 21.7 seconds behind the winner at the end of that race, which, of course, was the KTM of Oliveira. That's how strong this bike suddenly is um, in this class. Um, it's looking ominously quick. And in terms of next season... Um, we've already seen the um, Intervetten team switch to KTMs with Sam Lowe's, of course, joining that team. Sky VR46, um, who are in Moto2 next season, um, they had a look at it earlier in the season in terms of running um, the KTMs. And um, I don't know if it's actually official yet, because it's not on the entry list, but the, the talk is that they are also going to be running KTMs next season with Banyaya um, within their team, the rookie of this year. Um Kalex are going to have to... St- I never thought I'd ever say this about a Moto2 championship, but Kalex are going to have to step their game up, Dre. Yeah, like, they have a threat. For, they have a legitimate threat for the first time, like, in years that, you know, probably since the end, like, since the days of Marquez, where they've got a contender here against them now. KTM are looking dangerous, and they're going to get another weapon in Sam Lowe's next year, who is more than capable of winning races at that level. So... Yeah, as it stands right now, like Calix are going to have to keep their eyes half open here because KTM are on the prowl. Yeah, uh, Mike VDS will be uh, keeping a close eye on that to see how that KTM progresses, um, given that they are sticking with Calix. And just to confirm, because I've just checked the entry list, um, SkyVR46 will be Calix next year. Um, they didn't manage to secure KTM's next season. It was the Interveten team that picked that tab up. Um, but yeah, as far as this Moto2 race was concerned, um, Miguel Oliveira, the winner for the second consecutive re- weekend from Brad Binder, his teammate. Um, KTM on two, Morbidelli third, he's the new champion, um, Matai Pacini fourth, Pekko Banyaya, rookie of the year fifth, Hafish Sayarin, the home favourite in sixth, ahead of Fabio Quattararo, who equaled his season's best, let's not forget, he's a rookie too in Moto2, um, he's off to speed up next year, Chavi Vieje, who's off to Dynabon next year, he was eighth, ahead of Isaac Vinales ninth, and Tetsuta Nagashima, um, what was he doing in tenth? That is a career best for him. In Moto2. rest of the points were completed by the two speed-ups of Simone Corsi and Augusto Fernandez, Andrea Locatelli, Ika Lacuona, and Jesco Raffin, who after that amazing run up, Philip Island reverted to type in Malaysia. He was 15th. Championship standings then. Franco Morbidelli is an unassailable 43 points clear. Uh, 45 points clear, should I say, over Thomas Lutie, um, which I guess gives that championship a more uh, realistic and reflective look of how the season has gone. Uh, Morbidelli is your champion. Lutie's confirmed in second. He cannot be caught by Oliveira, even with the injury that will rule him out of Valencia. Oliveira is 27 points back in third, so even a win for Oliveira and Valencia would see him miss out by two points. He is confirmed in third, though, because now Alex Marquez cannot catch him. Marquez is confirmed in fourth. Shows you how spaced out the Moto2 championship is. He cannot be caught by Banyaya in fifth. The only battles really are Banyaya versus Pasini for fifth and sixth. Takaki Nakagami, who has Simone Corsi and Brad Binder breathing down his neck for eighth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. And Jamie Vierke, who's tenth in the points ahead of Dominique Egata, who of course rides for the Kiefer team, who understandably, given the circumstances, withdrew from the Malaysia Grand Prix. Right, on to MotoGP up next, and the championship which we 
kind of thought was more likely to be decided than the Moto 2 title um, in Valencia. As it is, it hasn't been. Um, and we cannot give enough credit, can we, Dre, to Andrea Dovizioso, who continues to answer new questions posed to him this season. He was on the canvas after what happened to him in Phillip Island. It was a dreadful weekend for him there. Hemorrhaging points. He gave 20 through 22 points up to Marc Marquez in the Australian Grand Prix. Um, and to his eternal credit, as I say, he was on the canvas after that. And he came back and essentially, with the exception of Q2, dominated the race weekend. Absolutely. I mean, again, as you said, he looked dead and buried after Philip Island. I thought, we're done here. The fat lady's warming the vocal cords. It's over. But, like, we, we've we've quickly underestimated um, Andrea Davizioso time and again. And I guess it's only fitting we do it one more time before this season finishes. Um, yeah, I, as you say, um, he, he's been superb. Um, again, like, to... To pick yourself up off the canvas after that knockout blow from Marquez and Phillip Island, and you know, basically do what you had to do to keep your sl- you know, okay, let's be real here, slim chances of the title alive doesn't matter. You got to do what you got to do on this one, and Dovi did the thing. You know, he won a very hard fought, competitive, tense race at Sipang, and just yeah, just to give. Tense. Yeah, to say the least, and you know, did exactly what he needed to do to keep the championship alive, and that was win. And you know, he had to come through a a a, a teammate who was on it again this time around, but he did what he had to do, and now he's got just a sliver of a chance at Valencia. Yeah, it was one of those where, if you look at that race in isolation and forget the outside sort of factors and the context of it. It's a bit of a snooze fest, um, the Sepang Grand Prix, mm. but it was it was a nail biting race because you just knew at any point something could happen which could essentially decide the world championship. It had those championship implications behind it that made it the kind of race that you just couldn't take your eyes off. And the tension, you know, it was a tension racked and nerve wracking Grand Prix to watch, especially if you were in the Ducati or Honda pits. Um, and, and as Ooh. you say, Davizioso doing what he had to do, and. Again, we it's something, again, that cannot be overstated in terms of what he's done this season. And fast rewind a year to him winning this Grand Prix uh, in Malaysia 12 months ago, where it was his first Grand Prix win for, what, seven years in MotoGP since Donington 2009 when he won his one and only yeah. Grand Prix prior to that. Um, and now we're at a point where, let's not mix this, Dre, let's not mince our words here. Since the summer break, or since Assen, Matt Marquez has reached a level that we probably haven't seen him at before, yet Andrea Davizioso has matched him punch for punch. Yeah, he's just done everything possible to keep it to keep to keep himself just about in the hunt to make it interesting. Um yeah, like Marquez has been incredible. Like the results I don't think even quite tell the full story of just how good Marquez has been uh, in terms of consistency and ability, but Dovi has been right there taking his chances where he can get them and just maximizing the opportunities he's been given. Like we've seen it in Austria. We saw it at Mategi where he just took a chance and went for it and got it. And that's been Dovi's greatest strength this season. It has been his ability to be able to, to bounce back. And again, like Dovi has won six races this season. Now six, that would win you many a championship. I mean, Valentino Rossi almost won the title two years ago with four race wins. Uh, and you know, Dovi won his Moto3 title with three. Yeah. Like, Dovi has won six 
and he's probably not going to do it. That he, he, might win, he might win seven and not do it. Yeah, that's how like he has to win Valencia to have any chance whatsoever at the title. And um, he could win seven and it wouldn't be enough. And that is just incredible. Um, just the sheer bad luck, but also just the spirit of Dovi that will not be broken, regardless of uh, how much Marquez is going to throw at him. It's 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 bonkers. I mean, we'll come on to the actual circumstances of the race and how it was won in a moment, because it's, um, depending on uh, your point of view, I'm sure Bex is uh, screaming at her laptop as she listens to this in terms of how the, uh, let's say how the result was orchestrated, if you want to put it that way, um, over at Ducati. Um, but they they go to the final round of the, of the championship with a chance. It is a slim, slim chance. He's 21 points behind Marc Marquez, um, who we'll talk about his race in a moment, um, which basically means um, if Marc Marquez finishes in the top 10 um, next weekend. He is the champion. In fact, if he finishes in the top 11, he's the champion because he's 21 points clear and you get five points um, for 11th. Anything other than that, and Andrea Vizioso could pinch the championship with a win. Dobby has to win and hope that Mark Marquez is, in 11, is 12th or worse, essentially, uh, in Valencia, right. which is a very, very long shot. Um, but, Dre, given the season they've had, given the season that Andrea Vizioso has had, the best season of his life, and the progress Ducati have made from last year to this year, even if it is a slim shot, it's a shot. And the, with the, the amount that Ducati and Dovi have put into this season, that's the very least they deserve, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the way it's been, they deserve a chance. They deserve at least that They've much. earned that right to go to Valencia with the world talking about them, talking about Dovizioso and Ducati saying, do you know what? In 28 laps time, they could be world champion. Yeah, and that's all they can, that's all they can hope for at this point. So why the hell not go up there in, in positive spirits and just see what the hell happens when they get down there. Do the thing. Win they've the got race no- hope for the best. Yeah, they've got nothing to lose and potentially everything to gain. So why the hell not? Yeah, if I was... I mean, I don't know what Ducati resources look like, but yeah, just... Uh, I wonder if there are any spare GP17s lying around that they can, they can hand out to Pramac and to Aspar uh, for next for next weekend. You know, no doubt Michele Pirro will be wheeled out, won't he? Um, as a wild oh, yeah. card, which will be... Uh, yeah, that wild card entry will uh, have extra connotations behind it. It won't just be a test bed. It'll be, let's try and get as many bikes ahead of Marquez as we can um, next yep. weekend. Because, of course, Jorge Lorenzo goes well at Valencia. Um, we know that from uh, past experience. His last win, of course, was there um, this time last year. Um, and as I say, um, they have earned the right, Davizioso and Ducati, to, to be the centre of a race that probably isn't going to have the same build-up as the last title decider in 2015. But the world of motorsport will be talking about Valencia next weekend. And that's with all due respect to the Grand Prix uh, on four wheels that will be taking place in Interlagos. Um, no one cares! The world, the world will be talking about Valencia and MotoGP as the championship is decided. And I, I, I'm, as nothing else, I'm happy for Andre Vizioso, given the amount of hard yards he's put in in MotoGP, that he's going to get that moment um, next weekend where he is the centre of a huge event, a huge Grand Prix, where the championship is up for grabs. And just imagine if he wins it. Um, it would be an incredible story. And, and Ducati have got to hang on to that hope. They've got to hang on to Valencia 2006 and the amazing turnaround that saw Nicky Hayden pinch it from Valentino Rossi back then. Or Silverstone this year, where the exact result that Ducati need to win the championship took place. And where, of course, Marc Marquez DNF'd and Dovi won the race. That's the kind of scenario Ducati need to happen um, to win this championship next weekend. And yeah, if nothing else, I'm just happy for them that they have that moment. They have that shot next weekend and for the season we've had in MotoGP all told it deserves a final round shootout 
Um, he deserves the championship to go right to the final lap of the season. So let's hope we get an exciting finale um, in seven days from now. Um, in terms of the race they won, Dre, uh, in Malaysia, um, it was one of those where as soon as Jorge Lorenzo took the lead and Divizioso had fought his way through to second at the expense of Marquez and Joan Zarco, we kind of knew what was coming uh, in the second half yes. of the race. Um, and as much as team orders don't necessarily leave the uh, nicest taste in most people's mouths in motorsport, I've described them many occasions as a necessary evil uh, in motorcycle racing. On this occasion, surely this was the absolute epitome of a no-brainer from Ducati's point of view. They had to do it. They had to give themselves a chance. Yeah, um, trust me, I am easily in the... I, I'm in the camp of people that just laugh at team orders as opposed to being against them because, listen, I support Sebastian Vettel. How the hell am I going to be against <laughs> team orders? Like, let's be real here. But it, it, by any measure of, of... I mean, yeah, I know a lot of people... People get emotional about team orders in motorsport. I think that's, I think that's something we could all unanimously agree on here. It riles people up. Let's be also real with each other here. Ducati had to do it. Yeah. They had to do it. Otherwise, Marquez would have won the championship. It's, it's right there and then. Like, see, they had to do it. And Lorenzo had no chance at the title. Dovi would have given himself a slim chance of the victory. It was a team order. Let's not let's not beat around the bush. It was. They had to do it. It was a necessary evil. Like team orders in general being the necessary evil. I can accept it. I have no problem with it. They did what they had to do. Um, luckily, it never came down to that actually being a thing where it was. It wasn't necessary. Complete... The Lorenzo nearly lost the front <laughs> trying to trying to get around turn fifteen on the uh, midway through the race, and Dobby then went past him, and from that point, Jorge just basically settled for second because he knew. Well, he first of all, he knew that he'd have to push to the limit just to get on terms with Dobby again. So I think I'm pretty sure that if that race hadn't involved team orders and that wasn't Lorenzo on the Ducati, Dobby was just biding his time there and waiting for the moment. I'm pretty sure of it. He had the pace in the wet to win the race on his own anyway. Um, but, yeah, what what I found slightly curious about it was how they felt the need to um, bring in this coded message of um, suggested mapping eight on the uh, on the dashboard, which um, Dorna so brilliantly now uh, are able to televise. As soon as it goes into the dashboard, Dorna are able to put it on the TV screens and tell us what the team are telling him. Um, mm -hmm. But as David Emmett pointed out, team orders aren't banned. So they could have just said, drop one position. They could have put, move bitch, get out the way on his dashboard. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it would have been allowed. They would have been allowed. Um, so I don't see why they felt the need to code it and be so clever with it. They could have just basically told Jorge to jump out of the way and let Dobby through, and it would have been allowed. But but hey, that was the that was the route Ducati chose, and uh, and they got the result they needed. They got the one too. And I would just put it to anyone who had an issue with, an issue with what they saw last weekend. If Mark Marquez suddenly injured himself in Valencia or his engine blew up and Dobby won the race and lost the championship by two points, how silly would Ducati have looked? And how many he how many heads would have rolled in Bologna if that had happened? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. And yeah, like the only issue I think was that Ducati basically tried to play dumb with its audience, and I didn't appreciate that, especially like given Ferrari did where that went at Hockenheim. Yeah, it's it's like who are you trying Don't to fool? Our intelligence. Yeah, exactly. It's like, especially given that all of their their key players in that team all came out with different stories. Yeah. I think the I think the only one that was truly innocent in this was Dovi. Um, 
he was probably just riding his race out there. He probably wasn't thinking, oh, Lorenz is going to let me through and win. Like, and indeed, I don't and speak- indeed Jorge, to, 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 to be fair. Yeah. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo um, obviously didn't let Davizio go through deliberately. No, he no, no, lost the front. But to his credit, um, Jorge Lorenzo has said all season, I would only really adhere to team orders if it's the last two races. Uh, he said in the lead-up to the weekend, I don't need telling what to do. I will do the right thing, and I know what I will have to do in the race. Um, and he pretty much said as much in the race that if the, when the moment had have come to let Dobby through, he would have done so. And no matter how much criticism, Dre, that Jorge Lorenzo gets from many quarters, when he says that, I believe him. He's always been sincere, Jorge Lorenzo. He, like His entire career suggests he is a, he is a rider that rides with class, with honour. And with integrity. So if I I did not know that Lorenzo had said that, but if he has said that, then I totally believe him because I don't. I've never had any reason to believe Lorenzo is a liar. Zero, none, nada, not not in the slightest. I think he is he is a honourable rider who rides with the best intentions, and like he's died on pettier hills than this (laughs) um, in in the past when it comes to his career. So I don't see any reason why he'd lie about something like that. So yeah, I believe him. I mean, Lorenzo said himself that he basically he didn't even see the message that was on the dashboard. He didn't even read it. But if he's out there saying, "Yeah, I would have got out of the way for 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 Dovi," I totally believe him. I don't think there's there's a question of of um, integrity there with Lorenzo. He's never been the sort of guy to to bend the rules and you know play mind games and that, that. He's he's always been the guy. If anything's been you know, the guy that likes to enforce the rules rather than bend them. Um, so, yeah, if Lorenzo's saying that, I believe him. And, you know, he is a mature team leader who I think the writing was on the wall for Jorge quite some time ago with this season. Um, and, but the thing is, is that given that Lorenzo is a 30-year-old man who, you know, is a multiple-time world champion and knew mathematically he wasn't able to win the championship. And he's being paid quite a hefty sum by Ducati as well. Paying, yeah, being paid eight figures a year to do, basically do what they do, do what they do what you're told, young Mark. Like, I don't think you needed to be told that. I really don't. If you treat Lorenzo like the human being that he is, I don't see why you'd feel the need to put a, a, ma- a message on the dashboard to say "get out of the way" in code. Um, Again, if you've, you if you've hired him based on his principles, which I hope they have, because I'm not I'm not sure what else they're signing him for. But like, why do you feel the need to basically give you a coded message, especially when none of you seem to apparently agree on what exactly happened? Yeah, uh, and, and surely, if you if you're Ducati, surely that conversation had already been had pre-race. That hey, if we're in this position, you know what the deal is. Um, apparently they hadn't. Apparently they hadn't, which I which I find remarkable. Like surely you'd discuss that pre-race, given what's at stake here for Ducati. Maybe they're still a little bit surprised themselves that they're in this position um, yeah. to win the championship. I don't know. Um, but following on from Dre's point, Lorenzo speaking to MCN after the race said, "I didn't see any message because I was focused on the line and on the next corner. Given how wet it was, of course, it was a wet race. In the rain, uh-huh. you can't lose concentration. I lost concentration at Bizarro when I crashed. Of course, we was leading by a mile there." I saw my pit board, I saw the RPM, but the team had to tell me after the race that there was something sent to the dash. Um, but I knew more or less what I had to do in any situation anyway, and I didn't need someone to tell me what to do. I know that the world title is important, and I knew that Marquez was maybe in fourth off his place. I tried to win the race, and I tried to keep pushing, but the front was at the limit, and to stay with Dobby to the end would have been difficult anyway. So what he's essentially saying is, I knew what the idea was, I knew I had to let him through, but even if I had to try and beat him, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it anyway. Um, from Jorge Lorenzo's point of view and it's 
we shouldn't lose sight of it, given that, of course, he would have wanted to win the race. Of course he would. But that is uh, Jorge Lorenzo's best result since signing for Ducati. Because, of course, he had a third place, a couple of them, um, earlier in the season in the uh, two of the three Spanish rounds that we've had so far, back at Jerez and then again uh, at Aragon when he was uh, following the two Repsol Hondas home on both of those occasions. And the progress continues to be made, Dre. And again, Jorge Lorenzo... He might want to be on the uh, right side of these kind of orders next season. And the, the way it's going, there's every reason to suggest that Jorge Lorenzo could well be right in the thick of the title fight this time next year. He's getting there. His wet his wet weather racing has been very good this year, besides that accident at Misano, a race that he was leading by multiple seconds. But by any measure, um, it's coming together for Jorge. That was his best performance yet on that Ducati Again, you know, challenging for the win, only a second off, a very strong second place, a one-two for Ducati for for the first time this season. Um, yeah, like it's coming together for Jorge now, and if he gets the dry pace going a little bit better, then look out for next year because he's going to be in the conversation. And you know, good luck dancing between those two guys at Ducati next year because that's going to be a, a fun a, a fun talk. Oh, oh wait, Ducati don't do those sort of conversations. <laughs> no. Of course. Yeah, Ducati may suddenly find themselves with two number ones next year, um, which is not a problem they expected to be having. They pretty much kept Dobby to be the number two, didn't they? Uh, going into this season, and uh, boy, as he steps his game up. Um, so, Ducati 1-2 then. Dobby from Lorenzo. First Ducati 1-2 since Austria last year, um, which I'd almost forgotten uh, when Andrea only led home Dovizioso there at the Red Bull ring. Um, prior to that, their first 1-2 for since uh, Capri Rossi was with the team. Um, that's how long ago it was. Um, and, and a great result for the team. Joining them on the podium, though, um, Joan Zarco, who, um, for, for one stray, um, because I don't think he necessarily got it in Australia. He got a result that his race weekend's body of work deserved. Absolutely. Zarco, yet again, just phenomenal. Um, chose to change it up a little bit, went with the soft tyre instead this time round. Um, didn't quite work out, lost pace towards the end of that race compared to the front two after you know, leading quite comfortably in the early goings. But again, by any account, another superb weekend for Zarco, and he's probably got Rider of the Year for me cemented already. He's, he's been superb. Uh, yet, yet again, I cannot speak highly enough of the season that he's putting together. And uh, yeah, once again, another phenomenal job all weekend long. Yeah, um, he, he, he was excellent. And yeah, well-deserved again for Johan Zarco, who's looking like a, a real weapon for 2018, depending on what bike he's on. <laughs> yeah, depending on what weather it is. Because uh, uh, Johan Zarco has spoken after the Malaysian Grand Prix and talked about how he wants a bit more of a say into the future development direction of Yamaha, which is a pretty punchy words for a MotoGP <laughs> rookie. He's riding for their satellite team and he wants a bit of a say in uh, the direction these bikes go in the future. Because of course, uh, and we, we should mention this, he is going to be on this year's Yamaha next year. Uh, and with every passing race weekend, especially those that are wet, Dre, that's not looking like the bike to be on. Yeah, like, is are we sure this is an upgrade for Zarco next year? Like, are we sure about this? Because, yeah, the way it's going right now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure the 2017 bike is going to be better for Zarco in the long run because he's been phenomenal on, on the 2016 bike. And the Yamaha, the story of their season will be them basically hitting um, hitting their bike with a hammer all year long, trying to figure out why it's not going faster. Um, so when you factor all of that in, like 
I love that Zarko is completely fearless. He doesn't give a frig who you are. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm only like a handful of points behind Valentino Rossi. I deserve a say in what Yamaha does with their bike next year. He's a frigging rookie, and he's coming out here talking like he can develop a bike. The cheek of this man. Yeah, he said brilliant. He says, I don't think Yamaha did something wrong with their 2017 bike, which is, I think, being a bit polite, because they didn't make big changes between it and the old bike. But if something is weak with it, I don't think they'll give it to the Tech 3 team, which is essentially his way of saying to Yamaha, if you think this is bad, don't think you're giving me this heap of junk in the wet. Um, yeah, I want, I want a better bike than this. He says, because the Yamaha team's target um, is to have four bikes on the grid and four bikes competitive. Um, hopefully, what they did this year with the 2016 bike, the bike he's been on, gave them even more data. So let's see if we can have an even more competitive bike for the future too. Um, so he's already, so, as I say, he's already sort of dropping in those little hints of, yeah, hopefully we can have a more competitive bike in the future, like he has a say in that. Um, mm-hmm. Where essentially he gives what uh, he gets what Yamaha give him from the previous year um, for for Joan Zarco. Um, but this, um, I, I hadn't really thought about this, but um, it deserves repeating because it's mentioned in mcn how many times do you reckon this is now it's the fifth time that zarko has beaten the factory bikes home in a grand prix this year five times that's a th- third of the season jesus christ that like alarm bells should be ringing in the yamaha camp when the satellite man has beaten you five times over this year that is beaten not both good. of your men yeah that's that's not good. Like by by all accounts, that is not good. It, you're leaving the door open for criticism. Um, that doesn't include yeah. the time Folger beat them at the Saxon Ring either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Tech Free as a team, we're calling that what six times now that yeah. the Tech Free has beaten both factory Yamahas over the line. Like Zarko is only forty five points behind Valentino Rossi. That's alarming. The satellite guy should should not be that close. Like just just saying, the Yamaha. Like like I know that Yamaha have had problems with their riders taking points off each other because they've never never the only team to have really two guys in this fight. Zarco has seventeen more points than Jorge Lorenzo does, a, a former world champion. That is alarming. He like he is brilliant, but let's not forget Yamaha. The Yamaha is still on a dry spell. They have now gone 10 consecutive rounds without a win. That has not happened since 2014. Um, so, yeah, a lot of fair criticism is going to be leveled towards Lynn Jarvis from the shareholders asking, where the hell has our season completely gone to shit? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it has in, in no uncertain terms as well. Yeah, that five, incidentally, that does include uh, Folger at the Saxon ring um, because uh, Zarko has beaten them to the flag. Um, earlier season at Jerez, where he was fourth with uh, Vinales behind him. Um, Barcelona, where he was fifth. And, of course, uh, Rossi and Vinales had nightmares there. Um, Austria, where he beat them in a dry race to the flag as well. And then, of course, um, this time in Malaysia, at that Volga's result back at uh, the Saxon ring when he was second. And that's five times out of 17 um, that Tech 3 have been the first of the Yamahas to the flag. Um, First of the Hondas to the flag, unsurprisingly, was Marc Marquez. He took fourth. Um, and uh, again, another sign of his maturity, Dre, in a Grand Prix. Mark Marquez, who essentially did what he had to do, he was of the mindset of, I want to win this championship, and I don't mind if I don't win it today. Yeah, Marquez was in championship mode. He saw he was going 100% just to keep up with Zarco. 
Um, he re realized, I think he said after the race, he said in the middle of that stint, he realized that, that he'd have to take too many risks to try and pass Sarko. So he took the comfortable fourth place, took the 13 points, and you know, let's let's basically go and win it really comfortably in Valencia. Um, he, he was in, he's been in championship mode pretty much all year long. This was no exception to that. He knows what he's got to do. It was a smart ride from Marquez, and yeah, he's been great in the wet all season long. This was actually one of his weaker days in the wet, which, which says a lot about how quality he's been when the rain's come down this season. But despite that, still a great performance, did what he needed to do, and we'll, and we'll probably wrap it up in Valencia, which, hey, Spanish party's not a bad one. Yeah, but at least he's, <laughs> at least he's given us a final round shootout as well. Yeah, if Mark Marquez had decked it um, during that race and uh, yeah he has decked it 25 times in one session or another of the course of this season um, <laughs> it would have been it would have been an eight uh, eight point championship would have been talking about eight points between um, the the two riders Mark Marquez and Andrea Vizioso which would have been wide open that would have been essentially meant a Ducati won two in Dobby's favour and he would be champion in Valencia so yeah Mark Marquez running a sensible race if nothing else um, there wasn't really an awful lot to um, talk about from Mark Marquez's race. So instead, Dre, let's talk about what he did in FP4 and Mark Marquez's in-house competition for the save of the season. I think we have a winner. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it, Mark. You're not fair. For God's sake. Give somebody else a chance to win that award. I thought Laurie Spaz was phenomenal yeah. enough at Cota. This time, it's like he has two accidents in one. The first one on the right-hander at turn one. He's picked it up, and he's he's not even using the knee slider. It's uh, he's holding the bike up purely on his knee. I I want to know what this man's bone comprehension is. It's not fuming. It's adamantium. Okay, at this point, Mark Marquez is Wolverine. This is the only logical explanation <laughs> for his ability. The commentary, Stop this. the commentary of it was great as well. Keith Ewing, who's watching this slow mo replay in super slow mo, so it unfolds over about twenty seconds, and he's like, "Oh, look at this from Mark Marquez," and then it's like. He doesn't save this, does he? And then about five <laughs> seconds later, do you know what? He saves this. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, he just gets up and he just sort of picks it up off, eventually off the knee and then just rides off. It was unbelievable. Um, head to MotoGP's social media channels if you haven't seen it, uh, at MotoGP on Twitter, because they uh, they tweeted it out immediately and they've uh, retweeted it several times during the week since. It is extraordinary um, that Mark Marquez loses the front for what seems like an eternity and stays I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Watching it, I'm watching it back right now. Like any other guy, he's gone. He is absolutely gone. I do not know how he does this. Yeah, extraordinary that he, uh, that he managed to save that one. Um, Mark Marquez, ladies and gentlemen, um, which probably explains uh, how, just how hard it's going to be for Dovi uh, and Ducati next weekend in Valencia, because even when Mark Marquez crashes, he still manages to stay on board the bike. Um, it's quite incredible. Um, fifth place behind Mark Marquez went to his teammate, Danny Pedrosa, who, um, it has to be said, came out on top in one of the best qualifying sessions I've ever seen. Uh, on Saturday, it was a brilliant Q2 where pole position changed hands about four times in the final minute. Um, where first Valentino Rossi put it on pole, then Dobby took it off him with what looked like an unassailable lap. Then, in within seconds of each other, Zarco and Pedroza both went into provisional pole, uh, with Pedroza eventually claiming the pole position spot, his third of the season, and um, he's had a few of these uh, in Sepang. It's his AEO as well, too. He was one guy, Dre, I think more than anybody else, who was wishing that race had stayed dry. Yeah, probably. Um, again, Pedrosa's been very strong here year to year. It's one of his better tracks on the calendar. Um, you know, given how he struggled in the wet quite quite a lot, you know, Mategi, he crashed there, and Masano, you know, limping home. 
place. This was a, a, a key improvement. I mean, Bedrosa likes these flyaway wet rounds, and this was a bit better for him to get into the top five again. Although his dry pace was so shockingly good towards the end that, hey, who knows? He probably, he probably would have done better if it was a dry race, given he's won here before. Remember, let's not forget, he won that dominant race that you know that time. That no assertions. Someone, you know, the, the race that shall not be named. Um, um, that We all forget that Petrosa was the one that won that day by multiple seconds. But yeah, it was an absolutely sensational qualifying session to get there um, with basically five pole position changes in the space of the final two minutes. Um, but yeah, probably would have liked a drier race, but not a bad day at the office for Danny. <laughs> yeah, and Mark Marquez is, um, this is another amazing stat, just to go back to Mark Marquez for a moment. Um, Mark Marquez is uh, lowest ever Q2 result. Um, of seventh, um, and actually uh, qualified on the third row. Of course, he's once in his career, MotoGP failed to reach Q2. That famous weekend at Mugello, where Honda outsmarted themselves and sat in the pits, and Mark Marquez was knocked out in Q1, uh, which essentially means Dre. Mark Marquez's MotoGP career, he's only started off the front two rows twice. <laughs> twice. It's laughable. He's, he's not fair. He's, he's, he's just That's not fair. That's in five years. He's been in the top two rows in every race bar two. Um, and uh, prior to this weekend, bar one. Um, so it's incredible. And again, a measure of the task that Ducati have in front of the next weekend. Because Valencia is not a great overtaking track. Just ask Valentino Rossi circa 2015. Uh, when he had to come from the back of the grid to try and win the title. Um, Mark Marquez is almost certainly going to be starting in the top six. Um, and he only needs a top 11. Um, so, again, a measure of the task facing Davizioso next week. But we'll talk a bit more about that in the season finale um, on next week's show as we look ahead to the grand finale, as it will probably be termed by Dawn, um, between Marquez and Davizioso. Um, this one won't involve the Yamahas. We'll come to them in a minute. Before we that, we'll mention another Ducati and another man who might have a role to play next weekend, Daniele Petrucci, um, who... Finished in sixth position, which might sound like a pretty poor result for Daniel Petrucci in wet conditions. He's usually on the podium at the very least. Um, and Dre, it's fair to say, he probably might have been had his bike not stopped on the sighting lap to force him right to the back of the grid. Sigh. I mean, if, if there's one thing that's worth watching on MotoGP's video pass is Daniel Petrucci's start. Um, he's playing a video game on the lowest difficulty. Is the best word I can sum that up. Um, incredible, to say the least. But yeah, absolutely, Producci probably would have played a factor in this. I think he had leading level pace. It was just the problem of starting from the back of the grid after his bike failed on the sighting lap. We had to quickly get him in there, switch him out. Um, couldn't get out um, where the pit lane was open, so had to start from the back of the grid. But still finished uh, towards the front of the field. Um, it was really good at this, whatever stuff, you know, just, yeah, just saying. Brilliant, brilliant ride. And uh, he made a quite a very good point as uh, to attain the World Championship. Because he did say um, that, you know, for sure he missed another podium chance. Had he started where he qualified, because he qualified mid-pack. Um, I managed to finish the race, but maybe we could have helped out Dovi, um, which actually a very, very good point. Had Pedrocci started where he qualified, who's to say he wouldn't have been between Davizioso and Mark Marquez in that top four, um, which, of course, would have cost Mark Marquez two more points had he done so. Um, so uh, the uh, the failure of one of those GP17s may well yet come back to bite Ducati in the backside. Um, Yamaha have no part to play, as I mentioned, in this World Championship anymore. Maverick Vinales' mathematical hopes were ended, ironically, by his teammate when Valentino Rossi beat him to the line in Phillip Island. Um, but as it turns out, it wouldn't have mattered because they were pathetically pants in the wet once again, Dre. Valentino Rossi 7th, 
um, and a long way back. He wasn't exactly a close seventh. He was half a minute off the winner. And Maverick Vinales was a further seven and a half seconds back in ninth. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, the post-mortem is going to be grim in that Yamaha squad at the end of the year. Ugly. It's going to be ugly. Um, yeah, once again, Yamaha, not a factor whatsoever outside of Zarco. Vinales was down the bottom end of the points for the majority of that race, and Valentino Rossi had, like, one flashy overtake on Bradley Smith that was on the hard camera. Like, that might have been the least Valentino Rossi has been on the hard camera during a Grand Prix he actually finished maybe in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, just completely irrelevant in this one. And, yeah, as I said, post-mortem's going to be ugly. I'd love to be a fly on the wall with that conversation with Lynn Jarvis and the team bosses, because, uh... Yeah, nowhere near the championship this year. Not even close for the second year in a row. Heads are going to be rolling down there. Yeah, we'll, we'll no doubt talk about this at much greater length uh, next month or later this month when we get to season review time here on Bite Life. Um, but it, I said this last week on the show, it almost feels like a different season when we were practically handing Maverick Vinales the trophy after two rounds. Um, when he had a 37-point lead over Mark Marquez at the end of Argentina, um, which almost feels unthinkable that that was the case at some stage in this very same season. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it means that um, I'm pretty sure whatever happens next weekend, either Mark Marquez or Andre Vizioso will set a new MotoGP record for the biggest deficit in points ever recovered from to win the World Championship because of right. Mario Vinales' early start. Mark Marquez at one stage was 37 off the lead. And Dovi, after that first uh, two rounds, he was 20, I think he was 30 off the lead um, after he only uh, finished uh, second in the first race of the season and then didn't finish the second race. He was 30 behind. So whatever happens, one of those two is going to have come from a huge deficit to win the championship because of the Yamaha collapse um, of Maverick Vinales, which has seen him tumble out of contention from what seemed like a very dominant lead uh, early on. Um, behind the Yamahas, or between the Yamahas, first of all, came Jack Miller, who finished eighth. And behind them, uh, in tenth, was Paul Espargaro with uh, Bradley Smith, who ran as high as sixth early on, finishing in twelfth position. Another stellar weekend for KTM, who once again got a bike into Q2 and a bike in the top ten at the end of the Grand Prix. Um, and it's worth pointing this out, Dre. They are now level with Aprilia in the Constructors' Championship. A Constructors' Championship, which, by the way, has now been won by Honda. Congratulations to them. Um, but KTM, at the end of this season, might not actually finish this season bottom of the Manufacturers' Championship. They might actually beat a manufacturer that has been established in this paddock for a number of years over the course of the full season, which is extraordinary. Aprilia is going to be pulling their hair if they've been beaten by the new boys. They can't have that. Yeah. Um, especially when they have Alicia Spagaro as one of their two riders, who's yeah. a phenomenal guy in his own right I to have. They've given Sam, Sam Lowe's a better bike all year. Yeah, jeez. Again, serves you right, pretty if you ask me. Um, but yeah, like KTM has been stunning, pretty much. Like especially in the second half of the season, I think the only problem they had in this race was Bradley Smith got a nosebleed from being too high up the field. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was the only one. I was watching that race. Thinking, Hang on, what is what is that? Why does he say SMI in sixth? What what is he doing up yeah, there? Yeah, like, what's that thirty-eight doing yeah, there? There's a glitch with the tower. Quick, it's a glitch. <laughs> what is he doing but yeah an extraordinary show for KTM and, and another I mean like, look, it's not a surprise these days but I, I think for me when they're getting into the top 10 and Q2 Sepang of all places the circuit the power track on the calendar um, the circuit the, the MotoGP teams have got more mileage around than any circuit on the calendar then that, that's a measure of KTM's progress if they're top 10 there then they can be top 10 anywhere 
Um, Absolutely. So, um, yeah, Valencia, you'd imagine, given that they had their, they've actually raced in Valencia before with Calio last year, um, how competitive could they be there, given that it's a circuit which tends to close the field up? Um, and Calio, of course, will be there next weekend. Um, it's going to be the most packed MotoGP grid ever. We're going to have a wildcard Ducati of Piro and a wildcard KTM um, of Calio as well. Um, so, um, yeah, it's going to go out with a bang this MotoGP season. Just one race to go uh, in this championship. Um, and here's how Malaysia finished. Davizioso, the winner, for the sixth time this season from Lorenzo, his teammate. Uh, Ducati won two. Zarco, third from Marquez and Pedroza. Repsol Honda, four, five. Danilo Petrucci, sixth. Um, Valentino Rossi, seventh. Um, that's about all there is to say about his race. Jack Miller, eighth. Maverick Mignales, ninth. And Paul Espargaro, tenth. Uh, Bautista, who had a pretty poor weekend until the race, finished 11th. Bradley Smith, 12th. Scott Redding, who ran similarly high in the early stages of the race before slipping to 13th. Hector Barbara, 14th. And Cal Crutchlow, uh, who had a crash, uh, remounted to finish 15th. Just ahead of the debutant, Michael Vandermark, who finished in 16th. Qualified last, um, but a solid enough two odd seconds off the pole, man. Um, it has to be said, Dre, given how little dry track time and how little prep he had because the conditions were mixed all weekend and the fact that he had no testing at all before stepping on that Tech 3 Yamaha that's about as much as we could have realistically expected from Michael van der Mark yeah that was a that was a great ride again like the worst possible conditions to be learning in wet conditions and you know a lot a lot of things that can go wrong and not many that can go right and van der Mark was challenging for points pretty much all the way through I don't think you could realistically have asked for much more than that. Um, a, a great job for Michael Vandermark. It's a shame he probably didn't get the most really out of his his his, his reward, shall we say, for his uh, Yamaha-based loyalty efforts. He cashed in his loyalty points quite nicely, like a Nando's half chicken. Um, again, shame, shame it didn't work out that great for him. But um, you know, 16th place is a really sort of result, and hey. If the Ponch himself is saying that hope that one day he'll probably be riding one of their bikes again, then that's probably that's probably a nice compliment. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, imagine what that guy, much like Jonathan Ray, back when he did that um, wild card outing or that replacement outing for Repsol Honda and finished what eighth in his two rides there. Um, imagine what he could do with a full preseason of testing um, behind him to get himself close to acclimatise that bike. We've already seen the likes of Larity, Baz and, and the likes step on MotoGP bikes, out of world superbikes and do very well. Um, so there's no reason why Michael van der Mark can't do the same. I remember you answering a question. I think it was since our last recording, which was an age ago. It was a week and a half ago. Um, <laughs> you were asked a question on, uh, on social media. Who will be the ultimate Yamaha successor to Valentino Rossi? Um, and I know you mentioned your, your answer was Zarco. Um, I wonder if Michael van der Mark, depending on when that time comes, whether Michael van der Mark might well still have a say in that. Um, way uh, future in future down the line. We hope. Um, first of all, we hope that Jonas Folger gets well soon. Um, of course. We, uh, we also hope that if uh, he doesn't, there may well be a case of Vandermark on that bike again in Valencia next weekend, which again will be a nice touch, um, given what he's done for Yamaha this year. Um, championship standings. Then it goes down to the wire between Mark Marquez and Davizio. So there is a 21 point gap between the two. As I mentioned, Mark Marquez needs to finish in the top 11. Um, next weekend to win the championship which is sounds easy but as we've seen in this season anything can happen 
Um, so uh, let's uh, let's see how it goes next weekend. Davizio also though is guaranteed to finish at the very least the runner-up in the World Championship, which is a career high for him in MotoGP. Uh, Maverick Vinales is guaranteed to finish third now. Can't catch Davizio, so he can't be caught by his teammate Valentino Rossi. Um, so Maverick Vinales will finish this season third in the points. Valentino Rossi is likely to finish fourth. Um, he's 12 points ahead of Danny Pedrosa um, in fifth. Danny Pedrosa can't be caught by Zarco in sixth, but Zarco has confirmed himself as the Rookie of the Year and, and has also confirmed himself as the top independent rider in this year's World Championship. He now cannot be caught by Danilo Petrucci in that one. Um, Jorge Lorenzo could catch Zarco for sixth. Um, he is seventh in the points um, on 137. That's 17 behind Zarco and 16 ahead of Petrucci in eighth. Cal Crutchlow is ninth and Jonas Folger remains in the top 10 in the World Championship. He might well still finish there, even though we might not see him again this season. Uh, right, finally, Moto3. And a very, well, it wasn't really a classic Moto3 race, it has to be said. For, for whatever reason, the field was a little more spaced out than they usually are um, in Sepang. Um, but one thing that does, does remain the same in Moto3 is the winner. Um, the 10th time in 17 races that Joan Mir has taken the victory. Um just showing to us Aldre why he is the world champion. And he has a record in his sights now. 11 is the all-time lightweight class record. John Mir is 10 with one to go. Ooh, pressure. Um, fun times. It's something yeah. to uh, hang our hats on for the final mode of three races of the season, I guess. Why not? A bit more history. Uh, yeah, yeah Mir, again, what can we say that hasn't been said already? He's doing incredible work. Um, an, another textbook Joe Amir victory just dictated the pace, knew when to strike at the right time, got to the front, stayed there. No one could put a finger on him. Like it's almost it's almost boring to say at this point just how good he is. But uh, yeah, he is just that good. Um, what was impressive yet. about this one, though? I think from 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 Mir's point of view. First of all, one thing we should mention, his first pole position of the year. <laughs> his first pole of the year, mainly because Jorge Martin's been doing it every other weekend. Um, but, um, but yeah, only the second pole of his entire career. Um, because the first one came in the same weekend as his first win in Austria last year. Um, so Joan Mir is not a qualifier, uh, clearly. Um, but yeah, it, what made this one so impressive is that Jorge Martin was on the pole and made that impressive start. He was two seconds clear after a couple of laps. And we've seen enough in Moto3, particularly around a circuit like Sepang, where the slipstream is so powerful around those long straights of Sepang. Mm -hmm. You're not really supposed to jump across a two-second gap in Moto3 to win a race, yet John Mir somehow managed it. Yeah. I, again, raw pace was just on another level. Compared, I mean, it's not like he's he's beating scrubs here. Like, that, that, was, that was Jorge Martin, who... Is due a win. He's been phenomenal pretty much all season long and has been, you know, in the conversation for really, really strong finishes. Um and and yeah, he he, he gapped him. He got got to, got got to Martin and found the way through after, you know, giving up three seconds on the start. He's 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 doing superb stuff here. Really, really great, really, really great performance there yet again, and just doing things that you don't really normally do. Um in, um, in, in Moto3 which again says a lot about his greatness yeah I mean this is a class that's meant to be close it always is close we always see races decided by tenths of a second and yet he's won over half the races um, this year 10 race wins out of 17 and as I mentioned Valentino Rossi holds the lightweight class record from his 125 championship year back in 1998 I want to say 
seven or eight, mm-hmm. one of the two. Um, and uh, he won 11 races that year on his way to the title. John Mier can equal that if he wins in Valencia next weekend. And uh, you wouldn't put it past him, would you? Um, the form he's in at the yep. moment. Um, a sensational result. And it was a measure of the level of respect, I think, that everyone's got for him in Moto3 these days. That um, rather than beat each other up and uh, the usual constant play swapping you see in the Moto3 groups, uh, up the front, it was almost as if the rest of the field knew that the only way they were going to get towed up to Jorge Martin up the front was if they'd stuck behind Joan Mir and followed him. Um, so no one, yep. no one made an overtake on Joan Mir in that first half of the race while he tried to tow them back up to the race leader, which uh, I thought was a great touch. It was almost as if everyone thought, yep, the only way we're getting on time with these guys is if we follow the champ. Um, get, and, uh, get with the program, yeah, fellas. Get program. Only one guy was able to keep up with Mir on that way to the front, and that was an Air Bastianini. Um, who finished third in the race. Um, shout out to Jorge Martin, who's left waiting once again for his first win. But, of course, being second, that is an equal career best for him in the class. And um, it has to be said, I mean, Franco Morbidelli's shown it this year, that even if you haven't won a race before, it doesn't mean you can't win the championship in your next year. And uh, Aaron Canet will probably go into next year, Dre, as the championship favourite. But Jorge Martin won't be far behind him. Absolutely. I think that's fair to say. Martin has been I mean, on that podium. I think this is his eighth podium this year, but he hasn't actually won yet. Jesus. Um, he's the new Morbidelli, which actually might be a good thing. Um, but um, yeah, Martin, again, again, we said it before, he's, he's, he's having a great season, a real coming of age season this time round um, in, in Moto3. I know Canet will probably go in as favourite. Martin should be right up there as well because... Uh, his form has been superb, and again, just consistency all the way through this season. He's been one of the top two or three guys pretty much all year long, and yeah, that should continue. If anything, it should get better next year. Surely that, that first win is coming. Yeah, surely it's going to come, and um, speaking of the list of next year's favourites, I think Bastianini will probably figure quite high, given that he's uh, continuing his run of trying to chase after the best team in the paddock. Um, rather than actually just trying to improve himself because he's joining the team that's won the championship this season. He's joining Leopard next year at Moto3 alongside Lorenzo Della Porta. Um, so um, Bastianini doing what he tends to do these days and that's suddenly discover his uh, mojo when it's all too late uh, in the season um, with another podium which leads him um, all the way up in sixth in the championship now. He could actually finish fifth if he uh, wins the final race. He could overhaul Di Gian Antonio for fifth in the points. Um, Bastianini, um, which is remarkable given that it's all come way, way too late in the season for him. Um, but yeah, great ride for him. Another also, Dre, behind the front three, another of those Livio Loy kind of days, just when he's um, in need, desperate need for a job. Uh, Livio Loy suddenly finds the pace again. Of course. Uh, it's, it's the Livio Loy way, isn't it? Uh, just just when you think he's going to be terrible again, he pulls another top five result out of his arse. Uh, again, I'm almost getting bored of this too. Um, but uh, yeah, did what he needed to do there, Loy. Um, good job um, from him on that one there. Uh, this is probably why teams keep giving him a chance because he keep thinking, hey, maybe I can get the best out of him next time round. Mm, yeah, he finished, but, he finished fourth in the Grand Prix behind Mia, Martin and Bastianini, just ahead of John McPhee, who... Uh, um, it, we, we sometimes feel a little bit reluctant to give him credit because I think BT Sport are pretty much maxed out the uh, John McPhee meter um, for giving him credit. Um, they've done they've done plenty of it for the rest of us. Um, but oh, put yeah. credit where it's due, great final lap to go from 8th to 5th uh, on the final lap for John McPhee. Uh, having had to run off track midway through that race when, um, I can't remember who it was, was it Ben Schneider that fell in front of him? 
Um, and he, I think um, he was, yeah. And he, oh, it was Antonelli, the other one, who uh, the other Red Bull KTM IO who fell in front of him. And uh, yeah, McPhee had to go all the way off the track at the final corner. Still came back to fifth. So uh, a good, good ride, whichever way you cut it, uh, from John McPhee. Um, but given that it was a rather uneventful Moto3 race, there are two other stories that we're going to pick on, which um, really centered around crashes. Um, Adam Norodin, uh, who uh, had the uh, home crowd. I always love this when it happens. And. Uh, has to be said, without taking a, a rather obvious dig at F1, it's the scenes that we don't often see in F1 races in Malaysia, but we always see in the bikes um, because they have, they have home riders to support, and uh, that obviously leads to sellouts. They were getting right behind Adam Noradin um, last weekend, whose um, performances through practice, qualifying, and the race really deserved more than 11th. Um, but, a, but a great showing for him and a great recovery. The fastest ever recovery from a crash I have ever seen in a Grand Prix. Um, I've never seen anything like that. Where he decked that was it at turn one, picked it up, and only lost eight seconds in the race, and still finished 11th, right behind his teammate, Ayumu Sasaki. Um, so uh, a great ride for Adam Noradin. He's a rider who will surely come on strong next season, um, the young Malaysian. Um, but we will give the last word in Moto3 to Tatsuki Suzuki um, on the uh, SIC 58 um, Moto3 Honda. Well, to be fair, he wasn't on it. He was several metres above it in the sky. Uh, when he high-sided off it whilst racing against Romano Fanati. Um, along with Mark Marquez, the uh, best super slow-mo we saw all of last weekend. Pretty much. How on earth did he just jump back on that bike and continue to ride the thing? Um, bike my, bike riders are a different species. I've said this I've said this time and again. They're not made like other people are. Like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You were flung 12 feet in the air. Yeah. <laughs> like... What the hell? <laughs> it's 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 ridiculous. I do not understand how this keeps happening. Yet here we are. Um, the, the, these riders are incredible. Listen, like they do, do not get it twisted. They are insane. Um, and yeah, just uh, it, it is a spectacular accident. Um, luckily. Suzuki perfectly okay in the end, but uh, good lord. Yeah, and he's um, increasingly establishing himself as one of my favourite riders on social media as well. He's yes. Suzuki. Of course, <laughs> remember, um, we told you about this last week, how he did a very classy tribute to um, Marco Simoncelli um, when he arrived at Malaysia. He tweeted... Dear Mark, Mr. Marco Simoncelli, one day I will be going up to the podium with your father, so please watch us from the sky, Tatsuki Suzuki. And then upon arriving at Sepang, he uh, tweeted a picture of himself um, with his hands clasped, praying in front of the uh, Simoncelli tribute with the tweet, Fight with your dad, um, which I thought was brilliant. Um, and then last weekend, um, after his high side, um, his first tweet um, was a photoshopped image saying maybe it's better entry like this to the swimming pool with an image of his uh, high side <laughs> over a swimming pool which was brilliant uh, find him at Tatsuki Suzuki 24 on Twitter believe me it's worth the follow um, and then he was asked again on social media uh, by MotoGP's official account how are you feeling today Tatsuki Suzuki 24 he replied my ass is completely blue which <laughs> 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 was brilliant Given that English is his first language, I thought it was brilliant. Um, he's only got 3,119 followers. Please add to that. That is a travesty. Follow this he's man. He's brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant on social media. Um, Tatsuki Suzuki, ladies and gentlemen, um, who um, is going to be oh, a rider to watch next year with that 658 team alongside Nicolo Antonelli um, next um, year. Um, here's how the race finished then. Mia, the winner from Martin and Bastianini, Livio Loy. Uh, in fourth, ahead of McPhee and Mino, who is the top KTM, and as a result of that, is likely to be the top KTM rider in the championship, as I'll confirm in a moment. Romano Fanati in seventh, confirming himself as the championship runner-up. Uh, congratulations to him. Uh, ahead of Aaron Cannett in eighth, who is guaranteed down to finish third. Um, Fabio Di Gian Antonio fourth. Um, uh, 
fourth in the points, ninth in the race, um, with Bob Schneider in tenth. The championship looks like this. Hulk, uh, John Mir is the champion. We told you about that um, after Mategi, after Philip Allen, should I say. He is on the verge of a 100-point lead over Mario Ferrati. It's 86 at the moment. Um, so he could win this championship by a century and, as I mentioned, tie the all-time record for wins in a season. Um, Ferrati guaranteed to finish second. Can it third with Martin and Gian Antonio? Um, the Grassini riders doing battle for fourth. Um, and Ea Bastini is sixth ahead of John McPhee, seventh. Andrea Migno now is nine points ahead of Marcos Ramirez in the race for the top KTM rider in the championship. Um, so if Migno gets on the podium next weekend, he's guaranteed to be the KTM winner for the season. Um, although it's a measure of how poor they've been, that that only means eighth in the championship. Uh, with Marcos Ramirez ninth and Philip Ertl in tenth. Both Ramirez and Ertl had poor race weekends, which saw them finish all the way outside the points last weekend. Next round of the championship, as we mentioned, is next weekend, and it is the season finale, which makes me feel all rather sad, and Valencia next weekend. Right, to the news and uh, to the final round of the Speedway GP series, which took place last weekend. If you're wondering where Rebecca James has been for the last month, she was there. Um, she's been in Australia for the last month, and we hope to um, announce her return to the show next week. Um, she's going to bring the, uh, in her words, the new Bike Live mascot with her. Um, we'll let her explain that one next week when she returns. Um, let, 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 just let me get in there. I didn't agree to any of this. No. Uh, no, Bec- why am I always left out of these conversations? Yeah. I want creative control, damn it. Be- Bex essentially has these conversations with herself. Um, she, she, uh, comes, she comes back and hijacks the show. You know this. Um, yeah, Rebecca James. It's the Rebecca James strategy. Um, yeah, we hope to have her back next week. Um, she has uh, said to the uh, she texted me last night to say how much she's missing being on this show so we hope to have her back next week um, she was in Australia as I mentioned at the Etihad Stadium in Melbourne where Jason Doyle was crowned the Speedway GP World Champion and congratulations to him given that he was an injury in the run up to the final round which cost him his shot at last year's title um, so thoroughly deserved for Jason Doyle he is the new Speedway GP World Champion um, ahead of Martin Vachulik who took the runner up spot and Ty Woffenden of Britain slash Australia uh, who finished the season in <laughs> third. Congratulations to those three. Um, back to World Superbikes, though. And um, we're going to talk quite a bit about the World Superbike paddock in the time that remains on this show. Because first of all, um, the calendar for next year and as well the rules for next year have been confirmed. We'll start with the calendar, though, for next season. Two key changes to it. Uh, two circuits that have dropped off the calendar and been replaced. Those two circuits that have dropped off the calendar are the Lausitz Ring. I know you're all gutted. Um, and Hareth. Um, which has no! um, dropped off the calendar uh, from the back end of the season. Replacing them, though, Bruno in the Czech Republic um, hey! and the uh, new Argentine circuit at El Villicom, um, which is going to be uh, hosting the penultimate round of next season's championship. Um, the uh, circuit is currently still subject to homologation, so it's not confirmed yet that that circuit is going to happen, but it's looking very, very likely that it will. Um Donna, I guess, giving that circuit every chance to be built by uh, running it at the very end of the season. Here's how the full calendar looks. Um, it starts in Phillip Island, um, as always, final weekend of February. 
Um, so the motorsport season gets underway nice and early with the uh, World Superbikes in Australia. 23rd to the 25th of Feb. Um, a month then follows to the second round in Thailand. Um, the European season gets underway, as always, in Aragon, 13th to the 15th of April, before back-to-back World Superbike rounds. Um, I have a problem with that, as you'll hear later on. Um, Assen follows a week after Aragon. Imola is on May the 13th, 11th, 12th, 13th. Donington Park hosts the British round, as we've uh, discussed in previous shows. It may also host the British MotoGP race next year, but more on that when it's announced. 25th to 27th of May for Donington. Bruno is on the 8th to the 10th of June. Laguna Seca is slightly earlier this year. It's the uh, 22nd to 24th of June. Usually it takes place in July, but it's in June this year. Um, that race weekend will be World Superbike only, as always, because the paddock isn't big enough to accommodate the other classes. Um, Mizano sees this championship return to Europe in the early part of July. In a two-and-a-bit-month gap, now you can see why I'm so annoyed, back-to-back rounds earlier in the season. Nine mm. weeks between rounds 9 and 10. Mizano, 8th of July. Portimao, 14th to the 16th of September. Uh, for round 10. Although there is an official test at the same circuit in the middle of that. Not that that really plugs the gap, but you know what I mean. Um, Portugal for round 10. Magnicor round 11. Final weekend of September. Argentina, El Villacom, 12th to the 14th of October. And then the final round at La Salle in Qatar, 25th to the 27th of September of October, which, like this year, like this weekend, means the racing is on Friday and Saturday. Don't be like Simon Patton of MCN, who didn't realise that until today. Um, now, now, as far as that calendar goes, Dre, um, first of all, the good news, Bruno back on the World Superbike calendar. And it's another of those circuits which just appears to be built for bike racing, doesn't it? So I don't think anyone's going to be too gutted to see... Uh, to see uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I don't think anyone's too gutted to see Lausitz ring a place, but I think everyone will be even more delighted to see that Bruno is stepping into its place. Why the hell was it not on the calendar? That's all I want to know. Um, Bruno is pretty much the home of bike racing now in, in Eastern Europe. So, like, seriously, like... I'm glad Bruno is back. Nobody misses the Lauscher swing. Like even the riders were, were slamming the circuit itself. Nobody liked that place. Nobody showed up to it. And yeah, it was just a nothing burger of a Grand Prix, That's really. So the difference with Bruno as well. People do turn out there. Oh yeah. Yeah, they freaking love their bikes in that part of the world. But that is under the, like, that's one of the, like, the tourists, like you circle that on the calendar it's, sort yeah, of it's ramp right there. always the highest attended MotoGP race of the season. Um, yeah, you know, so, 130 plus thousand over there. Yeah, the grass banks are always, there's pretty much no room to be found on there. Um, so we hope we see similar scenes for uh, World Superbikes next year um, as well. Um, because it's a great circuit for bike racing. It's a great circuit for uh, MotoGP, and I'm sure it'll be the same for World Superbikes if they can keep up with a certain Jonathan Ray next year. Um, as far as the other classes, um, the calendar is pretty much the same, except for Laguna Seca on World Super Sport. They don't go to Laguna Seca, but they go everywhere else. Uh, so the World Super Sport calendar will start in Phillip Island next year. As far as the World Super Sport 300 and Stock 1000 championships are concerned, they get underway at the European rounds and the European rounds only. Which I'm slightly disappointed about because I really wanted to see World Two Spot 300 at Phillip Island, um, but unfortunately we're not going to see that. They will follow the European rounds only, which means that they will start at Aragon in April uh, next year. Um, so uh, that's when the Super Sport 300 and Stock Thousand Championships will get underway. Um, now, as we mentioned right at the very top of the show, there are likely to be different rule changes or different rules set to be uh, reached to in World Superbikes next season. Operation Slow Down Jonathan Ray um, is in full effect. Um, Sounds about right. And here, are the, uh, here are the key aspects to it. 
Uh, and it surrounds the technical regulations. Um, rev limit is the first of them. A balancing system using air. You, know, you already know where we're going when they use the words balancing system, don't you? Uh, using mm-hmm. air restrictors has been replaced with a rev limiting system. The rev limit can be altered at various points throughout the season and applies to each individual manufacturer. Um, which basically means that the Kawasaki's are probably going to have their wings clipped more than anyone else. Um, concessions. A concession point system will be introduced to restrict engine development of the fastest machines. At certain stages in the season, teams that have achieved fewer concession points will be allowed to introduce updated concession parts. As a secondary benefit, the private teams will get access to cost-capped engine parts to help them reach end performance levels similar to the factory's teams. Front and rear suspensions and approved engine parts. Price caps and approval processes have been applied to several keyframes, suspension and engine parts. This process ensures access and availability to all parts for all teams, along with controlled pricing. Um, now, it sounds like a very <laughs> deliberate way of slowing down Kawasaki and Ducati as the factory teams. Um, now, now, how do you receive this, Dre? Because it's worth pointing out that these are a variation on the theme that saw MotoGP become the class it is today. Um, so if MotoGP, if it works for MotoGP, I guess it could work for World Superbikes, but it does seem like a bit of a ham-fisted way of just slowing Jonathan Ray down, doesn't it? Yeah, this, this like, it was a lot more subtle with yeah. MotoGP. Where it's MotoGP, like... Doesn't it? Yeah, MotoGP was much more of a case of bringing the lesser teams up rather than hitting the higher teams down, if that makes sense. Because um, that's what the CRT rules were for. They were to bring, there was to increase participation and to get the smaller teams up to something nearer the, the factory teams. In this case, it's a case of bringing the big teams down and trying to bring the smaller teams up via the concession system. But the rev limit one is one where I'm just thinking oh boy um yeah that seems like blatant code for yeah kawasaki's too good we have to cripple their bike yeah and like, if you're still too good we're gonna keep crippling you until you come back to everyone else because that, yeah, that, 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 now, that's what that's, that's the worry and i think this is gonna lead to some tears next year um because the the key part of this regulation for me is the rev limit can be altered at various points throughout the season and applies to each yeah, other manufacturer. Anytime. So anytime Dorna or the FIM or the race direction or the technical regulations, technical regulators see fit, they can slow a bike down. Yeah, and that that worries me. It worries me because like if what if what if Dorna gets it wrong and they overcompensate and hit Kawasaki too hard yeah. and they don't Kawasaki win a race Kawasaki midway down counts. the grid next year. Yeah, like you've got to be very careful how you do this. And if if you're judge, jury, and executioner on how much Kawasaki should be punished here, it could go very, very badly. And quite rightly, the factory is getting pissed off with the regulations changing every two or three races to accommodate everybody else. When Kawasaki have got every right on their own to just go, well, yeah, like we're just doing our best. We're just trying to win races here. And yet every time we win a race, you take, you look at a 500 RPM off our machine. Like what are we meant to do here? Mm. Um, it's, it's blatantly unfair on the top teams, but this is the problem with a sport. And this is a problem when sports and entertainment are so often tied hand in hand, where you've got to try and find some sort of compromise between both. And that is hard, um, given where World Super Bikes is right now, with blatantly two factories leading the way and everybody else 
a distant third or worse. I'm going to, I've mentioned F1 a few times in the show. I'm going to mention it again because I think the similarities here, um, not least in the fact that if these regulations really do piss off Kawasaki, who's to say they aren't going to, inverted commas, do a Ferrari and threaten to walk off and leave? Um, and where does that leave World, uh, World Superbikes if their biggest and best manufacturer at the moment packs up and leaves because the rule changes are deliberately set out to, uh, to hurt them? Um, and hurt them when they've spent the money to be successful in this class, um, which, which exactly. isn't really great. Um, and also, as far as F1's concerned, because I think there's a similarity here too, in that I think a series is always doing pretty badly when its rule changes are reactive rather than proactive. Um, when, you're, yeah. when you're having to react to a, a crisis to solve it with rule changes like this, you're behind the curve and you, you're, you're clearly not doing a good enough job in my view of running this championship when you're having to react like this, when you've got yourself into a bit of a mess that you're having to try and fix with last minute rule changes. And and the problem I can see coming up next year, Dre, is they're going to be chasing their own tails, aren't they? Because let's not forget, the season starts in Phillip Island where it's always super close. So mm-hmm. next season, Phillip Island, who's to say we're not going to have a very similar race weekend to the last two years where it's super close, Jonathan Ray wins it by a tenth of a second, and Dorna and Mr. actually going to look at that and say, oh, well, Johnny Ray only won by a tenth of a second, so clearly everything's fine. He then goes to Thailand and cleans up. And what do they do then? They're going to be chasing their own tails, aren't they? Yeah, it's like, where, like, where do what's you the draw baseline? the line? Yeah, what's the baseline? Where does the buck stop? What, what, is the, what is the trigger for you to go, yeah, we're going to take a 1,000 RPM off Kawasaki's top line? Like, like, like what's the point here? Like, what, like They need to establish like what the provisions are for them to reduce a team's rev limit. Yeah, they they, they also was, need to be very, very careful in terms of, you know, what is a team that's needing a bit of help and what is a team just having a bad race? Like Honda. Like Honda, exactly. like Honda having the time they're having at the moment. They need a bit of concessionary help. There's no question about that to catch up. Of course. Um, but let's say, for instance, Kawasaki just can't find the right setup in Phillip Island in the start of next year and Jonathan Ray struggles, or let's say Tom Sykes, who doesn't like Phillip Island, finishes midfield. Again, you don't quite know what the baseline is because there's a, there are there are varying, you know, there are, there's evidence to both sides, really, aren't there? And you don't quite know which is the true reading of how that bike is going. Um, so yeah, I think Dorna have they're, they're, there's a potential for them to get themselves a little bit tied up in knots here. Um, and I've seen this in British touring cars with turbo boosts and the uh, the um, the limits of that, which has ballast yeah, yeah. And, the, and the success ballast which has caused problems which has led to teams unhappy with how one manufacturer is in their their view being favored or being punished more than they really should be by the regulations and yeah i just worry that this championship is going to get tied up in knots next year and we're not quite going to know from race weekend to race weekend what championship we're watching like from one race weekend one team might have a good race and we're not going to quite know what that means whether that means okay does that mean they're going to struggle next time out because dawn are going to slow them down you know what what's going to happen and it, you know it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out and they're, they're going to have to be very very careful gregorio Olivia said in a, an interview with the world superbike website that the best will still win um and i hope he's right on that let's just say i hope he's right um, because I don't want this to get to a point where, yeah. essentially, we get a British touring car style scenario where, essentially, it's it's a it's a, a glorified way of bringing success ballast in and slowing a team down. Because I don't think that's really what World Superbikes should be about. Um, in terms of the riders that we're going to see on the grid next season, we know a lot of the calendar for next year. It's been confirmed, and we know a lot of the riders too. Um, Jordi Torres is going to be on the grid next season, but he's not staying with Altea BMW. He has decided, Dre, to fill the vacancy left by Leon Camier and MV Augusta. Um, I, 
I don't quite know how to react to this because from Jordi Torres' point of view, he could do better than that BM. Um, but I'm just not so sure this NBA Augusta is better than that BM. No, like the potential is there. We, we saw Camia get great results out of that bike on many occasions. And who's to say Jordi Torres can't do the same? But that's not a good outfit. It's not been a good team for some time. It's a team that's been riddled with mechanical foul-ups, lack of resources, and, yeah, just overall just shoddy worksmanship in comparison to some of the other teams in the championship. So is that better than being with a BMW team that doesn't actually support them? I, I don't know. Like, maybe the allure of factory backing sort of is what's is what's tempted Geordie over. Um, but uh, yeesh, I'm not in... Like, I, I, I tweeted this earlier today at the time of recording. I was like... He deserves better. I'm not sure that's an improvement. And, um, yeah, I, I, I guess that's okay for Jordy, but I'm not entirely convinced that that's better. No, it also begs the question, what does that mean for guys like Loris Bass, who's been linked with World Superbike seats ever since his MotoGP seat was taken and handed over to Xavier Simeon? Um, so where does that leave him next season? He was linked with the Honda seat, and then Camia got it. He was then linked with the uh, Altea seat, uh, sorry, the MVC and Torres has got it. Does that mean he's going to wind up at Altea next year? Or are RMB going to run two riders uh, and perhaps put, put Baz on the second bike? We shall see. Um, but yeah, there are more questions than answers um, for Loris Baz at the moment. But yeah, Johnny Torres confirmed in NBA Augusta next season. Um, now into the MotoGP paddock and uh, news that concerns next weekend in Valencia. Uh, Moto3 news and uh, a very exciting wild card is going to be uh, taking place next weekend. Mark Garcia. If you, that name sounds familiar, that's because he is the World Super Sport 300 World Champion. Um, and he's going to be debuted next weekend in Valencia um, with Max Biaggi's team. Um, so good luck to Garcia there. It'll be fascinating to see how he gets on up against the best in the world. Um, Jake Dixon will also be comparing himself against the best in the world because he's going to be back on the Moto2 grid next season in the Dynavolt team. And we saw him race for them at Silverstone earlier in the year. He'll be back with them in Valencia as a replacement rider. So uh, Jake Dixon's breakout season in BSB, um, and a brilliant season it's been, he'll be ending that with another Moto2 Grand Prix outing. Uh, so good luck to him. Um, mm -hmm. Moto3 news for next year and um, Darren Binder has been on the move and uh, this is news that's been really rumoured for a few months now Darren Binder will be following in the footsteps of his older brother and racing for the Red Bull KTM IO team next season a restructured I think is the right word Red Bull KTM IO team with just one rider in the uh, Grand Prix paddock and two in the CEV um, because they're going to be running the Turkish Onsu brothers Chan and Dennis Onsu um, mm -hmm. Proteges of Kinnan Sofoglu. Um, there are many of them. Top Rack Raskatioglu, another who's going to be in World Super Bike. So, how many has he got at yeah. this point? He's, he's, a, um, he's a trailblazer, is that guy. Um, they're going to be breaking the hips next and uh, returning a better rider. Um, but yeah, Chan and Dennis Onsu, who are going to be uh, riding in the CTV next season for Red Bull KTM IO, they are two riders, believe me, who have Grand Prix futures ahead of them um, in mm -hmm. the future, um, particularly now that they're within the Red Bull KTM IO family. Um, but yeah, Darren Binder is the headline of that news. He will be racing for them in the Moto3 class next season as their sole rider. Um, and one final piece of BSB news. Again, it um, succeeds to next year. James Ellison is on the move. He's staying on a Yamaha, but he's switching teams. Um, this news was broken last week, just after we recorded uh, episode 36. Um, James Ellison is joining the Anvil Hire Tag Yamaha team alongside Sean Winfield, um, which... 
I think it's good news for Ellison because, of course, he's shown on various occasions this season how good he can be on a Yamaha, even though the McCams team hasn't necessarily been um, the best team in the paddock. Um, but we don't quite know yet, Dre, where that, where that leaves Josh Brooks. Yeah, Josh Brooks has uh, remained tight-lipped on, on, on the Twitter regarding this week because we know Ellison's gone over there. But we don't know who he's replaced. Um, it's interesting. I mean, do, I can go back to, to Twitter to October 24th. So, by the time I listen, it's almost two weeks ago now where he's tweeted since. Relax, everyone. My deals for next season are done. It will all be made public when the teams and sponsors are ready to announce. Sorry. And then a zip-faced emoji. Um, so, Brooks knows where he is next year. We just don't yet. So, and, and it's been nearly two weeks now and still no sign of any sort of announcement as to where Josh Brooks is going to be in 2018. So, uh, interesting, but we know about as much as it is you do yeah, right yeah, now. So, sorry about probably that. probably have to go to Motorcycle Live to find out. Uh, that's probably where they'll end up announcing it. Uh, that's where a lot of things tend to get announced in uh, in motorcycle racing, particularly when it's uh, when it comes to BSB these days, um, given that it is such a hub for uh, motorcycle racing fans and sponsors alike. So, uh, yeah, probably news of that later this month, I'd imagine, um, surrounding BSB. Uh, but we've got one more World Superbike round to get through for the rest of this season. Um, sounds a bit sort of dismissive, doesn't it? Get through it, but it's kind of the way the season's been playing out. It's been going one way for a long time. Um couple of things that need to be decided this weekend in World Superbikes are a couple of key issues that we're looking out for. Jonathan Ray going for the all-time points record, which given that we're recording this after race one has taken place, gives you an idea of how that panned out. Um, well. <laughs> given that he needs two wins, uh, give, that gives you an idea of how his first race panned out. Yeah, he won it. Um, and the, uh, He's off right yeah, there. And the, uh, the fight for the championship runner-up is still to be decided. It's probably going to be Chaz Davies. Um, Tom Sykes needs uh, needs a win and uh, Chaz off the podium in the uh, final race to uh, to pick that one up. Uh, which means that our main focus, Dre, saying the main event from our point of view, and I never thought I'd ever be saying this, is World Super Sport. Um, because the championship decider, unbelievably, is on. Um, Keenan Safoglu, one month after breaking his pelvis in three places, is racing oh in Qatar and he's on the pace. <laughs> Um, I don't know where to start with this one. Um, the desire of this man. He's the most successful World Superbike rider in history. He's won several championships, and yet he still has the burning desire with a broken hip to go to Qatar on the off chance that he wins. Because he has to win and hope that Mahia screws up. Sod it. What, what has he got to lose? Um, I, I, I don't even know at this point. I mean... His pelvis is being held together by spit and Kleenex right now, and he's 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 within half a second of Lucas Mahias. It has been a monster round here so far this weekend. Um, so so fast. Yeah, um, fair play to them. Like I did. I, I didn't even think he'd be taking part this weekend, let alone the competitive, let alone qualifying on the second row in fourth place. The man is phenomenal, and he deserves endless respect for even attempting this buffoonery, and let, let, let alone being competitive at the same time. Who knows what could happen tomorrow, for all we know, um, with Mahias and Glizel in front of him. It's going to be an interesting race tomorrow, for sure. Mahias doesn't need to win. In fact, only all he needs is an, is an 11th place, actually a 10th place finish will seal the deal for him, regardless um, but hey, Keenan alone has made this championship so interesting, um, and his just, just a never say die attitude of him has been awe inspiring. And 
man, um, it's going to be very unlikely that Keenan wins the championship, but God bless him for yeah. trying. Put it this way, if he wins, if he if he walks out of LaSalle on Saturday night as the world champion, make a bloody movie about this, about this comeback uh, for Keenan. I'm playing the lottery. Yeah. I'm going to church that Sunday. He, he essentially defaulted the first three races of the season. Um, two of them through injury and the third of them when he was taken out um, on his return. And then he's essentially missed the last two. So he's, he's given up half the season. It's a, what, it's a 12-round championship in uh, World Super Sport. Yeah. And he's missed essentially five races. Um, so he's essentially won the, he might have won the championship through half of the season's races. Um, which would be an incredible, incredible story. And yeah, he's given us a World Super Sport Championship decider. I did think when it was announced that he was declared fit, I thought, yeah, and Lucas Myers' arse has just fallen out um, because <laughs> because he has got everything to lose now. Um, I mean, I do wonder if Keenan's literally just racing there and hoping that the fact, very fact that he's there, his sheer presence at that race weekend puts enough pressure on Myers for him to mess up and crash. Um, and hey, stranger things have happened. And Mahias has, you know, with the greatest of respect to him, he, he could have finished higher in Magni Core, and he could have finished higher in Hareth, but he's been kind of doing enough. Um, and who could blame him for that, really, um, given that Keenan's injured? He didn't expect Keenan to be back for Qatar. Uh, but Mahias needs a 10th place to win it. Um, the most likely scenario for Keenan to win it is if he wins the race with Mahias out of the points, or out of the top 10, but more likely a Mahias crash. Um, is, is Keenan's best route to it, in which case he would then only need a second place um, to win the championship because, of course, he would take it on the tiebreaker. Um, it does have that, that, that level of intrigue, doesn't it, Dre? Because Mahias is now, the pressure is suddenly huge on his shoulders. One slip or one crash and his season's work could be down the toilet. Exactly. And, like, do, do you want to give Keenan Safogadu one last chance to win this championship? I, I wouldn't even think about it at that point. Um, that would be a disaster. And, you know, the, the blessing is that guys like Clizel is gonna, um, and Caracuzillo could be in the mix there to make Keenan's life a bit more difficult. But by any measure, don't don't give Keenan a, a, a chance to, to, to potentially make some history here because... Uh, Oh boy, you wouldn't want to see an entire season's worth of work go to disaster like that right at the end. It would be heartbreaking for Mahais, who's done everything right really this year, and you know, to have a, a, a title like that snatched away from him right at the last would be awful for him. Yeah, good luck to them both. In, in all seriousness, I mean, it's it's one of those where I hope I don't want Lucas to lose this because I believe mentally it would be such a hammer blow for him. Um, if he did, didn't win this championship, because even though he's done, or he's only he's, he's been going about his own business, doing his own championship this year, and if he does win it, he deserves it. Um, and, and 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 in that sense, I hope he does, because I think the damage that it might do to him psychologically if he doesn't win it would be huge. Um, but equally, from Keenan Safwoglu's point of view, and I, I don't want this to sound a bit too um, soft, Dre, but from Keenan's point of view, I just hope he doesn't crash. Oh God, no! Like, like. The, the, just saying the term pelvis broken in three places makes me wince. Yeah. I, 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 I just I, hope I, he doesn't I, have a crash trying to win this championship and do any long-term damage. Oh, God, no. That would be awful. And that's just why I worry about him even taking part in this one because, like, that, he, he's he's riding he's riding very, very hurt. And I think back to the but, Casey Stoner one when he returned for his final farewell to MotoGP when he really shouldn't have done because he was too injured. And they were talking about the fact yeah. that if he'd had another crash, he probably wouldn't have been able to walk again. 
um, on, on that broken ankle yeah, just... that he'd injured. He basically returned when he shouldn't have done. And I get the feeling Keenan's doing this as well. It just emphasises what Dre mentioned earlier on, that these guys are a breed apart um, in what they do. Yeah. They they are iron men and women um, that compete across the world in these championships. So, uh, yeah, in all series, best of luck to Lucas Mahias and Keenan Sofoglu. The very fact that we're getting a championship decider in this class is, is incredible, given what these two have done all year. So, uh, yeah, we will follow that with interest and we will uh, headline next week's show with the World Supersport champion, whoever that will be, either Lucas Mahias or Keenan Sofoglu. Um, I kind of feel it's more a case of who will be the last man standing in this one uh, rather than who Good will be the champion. Be. So, uh, yeah, we will watch that with interest. And, indeed, we will review on next week's show the final round of the World Superbike Championship. Will Jonathan Ray be the all-time points record setter? Will he genuinely, officially, have completed the greatest World Superbike season ever? A win in the final race of the season and he will have done just that. We'll also uh, look back on who secured the championship runner-up spot. Brackets, probably Chaz Davies. Um, but we'll talk all about that next week on episode 38, when we will also look ahead to the MotoGP championship decider at Valencia. We look forward to your company then. Um, before then, though, episode Nelson of Motorsport 101, episode 111 uh, of the Motorsport ah. 101 podcast next week, um, where Dre... I get the feeling you'll be calling forth the mailbag again. Most likely. Um, yeah, we got nothing for you next week, folks. Uh, you know, we'll be probably previewing Interlagos a little bit, even though well, what's the sodding point? <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there is nothing to play for relevance besides maybe the fight for second in the championship. Who knows? Um, but yeah, we'll probably be digging in deep into your mailbag questions with an extended edition of that. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we can hodgepodge together a show for episode 111, and I'll most likely be back for that one too. So hooray for that! But um, yeah, just try and tune in and see what we come up with. Yeah. yeah the, only, the only thing on four wheels that's taking place this weekend, and that's I'm not counting NASCAR. Sorry, uh, the one, two of you that like NASCAR around these uh, these parts, that doesn't count. There's the six hours of Shanghai and WEC, and that is about it um, this weekend mm. because uh, damn Formula E doesn't start until December. Um, so uh, yeah. so yeah. Um, in many ways, they are the best shows when you've, as we've seen on Bike Live, when there's almost nothing to talk about, they tend to be the best shows. Um, so, so do listen in to episode 111 of Motorsport 101. Try saying that three times fast. Um, next week here on the Motorsport 101 Network. As I say, we'll also have episode 38 of Bike Live, looking back on La Salle World Superbikes and World Supersport, uh, as well as looking ahead to the MotoGP title decider from the two of us. And next week, who knows, it might be the three of us. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.